This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, and Stephen Means. We're in the lobby of the Fawcett Center on the Ohio State campus. Although, if there's an Ohio State employee uh, listening to this and we shouldn't be here, then we're not here. We're somewhere else. We're out in a field of daisies. Uh, we are here to preview Ohio State Cincinnati. We did the post-game podcast on Saturday, uh, and we have a story about that, by the way. We'll get to that later. Um, so we want to look ahead, and uh, Nathan and Steve and I are here, and and I know that uh, we have all dug in on this. So who wants to go first with the very detailed, in-depth breakdown of everything Cincinnati football and what the Bearcats do well and don't do well and how they will attack the Buckeyes? Fire away. I mean, I'll let you take that. <laughs> I'll say that they'll get their, they have a really good Big Ten style running game, according to Larry Johnson. Yeah. So listen, we don't have time for that, right? I mean, we have a million, we have literally a million things going on. So I hope to have time for things like that in the future. This past weekend was not the time for me to do that. I had this moving. Uh, this moving debacle that unfolded is like this cross between National Lampoon's Vacation and the Money Pit and Taken. I won't get into how all three of those things mixed into what happened to me this weekend, but it was not a good weekend for football study. So potentially going forward, I, I feel like I'll be able to maybe go beyond Ohio State uh, film breakdowns and such and get into some other things. Two things. One day you should get into that because I think that's very interesting. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. But on a football note, I did watch a little bit of that UCLA to Cincinnati game. Yeah. And, yeah, their running game is strong and the defense is solid. But some of that is UCLA has a quarterback who just made a lot of bad mistakes. Like, he literally just dropped the ball. Like, no one hit him. It wasn't like him throwing it. He just dropped the ball out of his hands at one point. It's actually the quarterback who was Tate Martell's backup at Bishop Gorman. So what we did learn is when Bishop Gorman quarterbacks come to Ohio, they usually don't do well. But, yeah, I don't, I'm not Larry Johnson, so I don't have the type of in-depth you know, breakdown that maybe he would have. I will say that the scene in the money pit where Tom Hanks falls through the hole in the floor and is stuck in the carpet – and is like laughing so hard that he can't breathe is one of my 10 favorite movie scenes of all time. Um, I don't know anything about Cincinnati, but but I, I know this. I know Luke Fickle, and I know Marcus Freeman, their defensive coordinator. And I think <laughs> our analysis of this game is going to be based on Ohio State. So I think Luke and Marcus will have a good defensive game plan. But I was reminded this week um, that in 2014, Ohio State lost 
to Virginia Tech, and I think the next week, where's my phone? Oh, I think the next week played Cincinnati, and I picked um, Ohio State to lose that game, and was like really, really wrong on that because Ohio State and uh, Ohio State like took over, and like it, it was not, it was not very much of a game, and so I have a view on how I think this game is going to play out. And sometimes I think the more, the, the thing we need to do, my daughter's running a cross country meet and uh, her ankle hurts and she's hurt. She's running with a hurt ankle. So I was thrown off there for a second. Um, the thing, sometimes you want to, uh, the most valuable thing is to analyze this game. Like as Ohio state beat writers who know this team, and we want to talk about what this game means, not just on Saturday, but for the rest of the season. But then sometimes like I want, I have a tendency to want to try to analyze it like as a Vegas guy and like analyze it in like a, well, you might think this, but actually this is going to happen. So based on, I, I want to start with the most valuable thing for listeners based on the way Ohio state played on Saturday, do you think it's possible Ohio State will have any trouble with Cincinnati based on what you saw from Ohio State? Sure. Um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I again, I just think Cincinnati is a solid team, and I don't think we saw anything out of Ohio State in week one that would lead me to believe that they can really take necessarily anybody for granted. Um, but I, there are some things that are going to be different than what they saw against Florida Atlantic. I, you know, Cincinnati didn't run the ball great. I mean, they, they had a decent number of yards in the first week. I think they averaged 3.6 yards per carry, but they have a mobile quarterback. I think that kind of dual threat is something that Ohio State didn't have to deal with against Florida Atlantic in in the first game. And as much as Justin Fields is going to improve, I think, from game one to game two, now Cincinnati, and as you mentioned, um, some, some good defensive minds are. I know Marcus Freeman a little bit from when he was um, linebackers coach, and I think he was a co-DC for a while at uh, at the very end of his Purdue uh, tenure, um, th- those guys, those guys, I think are going to now have a whole game of Justin Fields on film that they get to take apart and try to, you know, attack him where he might be vulnerable. So it, it's not outside the realm of possibility that Ohio State loses on Saturday. I think <clears throat> talent one hundred percent won last weekend. Weekend this weekend, I mean, Ohio State's still the more talented team, but Cincinnati is a lot better than what Florida Atlantic is at this point. So. Some of those, like, where it was strictly just talent or, you know, even some of the boneheaded mistakes by Florida Atlantic at the beginning of the game, those aren't going to exist. So, Ohio State's not going to walk into the second quarter with a 28 to nothing lead. So, I'm looking back at the Cincinnati game from uh, 2014 and the Associated Press game story written by my friend Rusty Miller. Um, this is an interesting lead. Urban Meyer was thrilled with his offense and disgusted by his pass defense. Ohio State won that game 50-28. They gained more than 700 yards. JT Barrett threw for 330. This is no longer rusty. This is me. Uh, and Ezekiel Elliott ran for 182. But uh, Gunnar Keel threw for 352 yards in that game. And they didn't really stop Cincinnati. And it was kind of still up in the air going into the fourth quarter. So I remember like just having – that was a stage in the in the 2014 Ohio State season where it, like people just weren't sure what to think of the Buckeyes because Braxton Miller had been hurt. JT Barrett had started. The offense had done nothing against Virginia Tech. You were like, what what's going to happen with this? And Ezekiel Elliott wasn't even Ezekiel Elliott yet. This was sort of the beginning. This game helped Ezekiel Elliott become Ezekiel Elliott. I think Ohio State might blow him off the field because – the thing that I think about this Ohio State team is that I just don't think they're going to be consistent. 
I don't think that Justin Fields is going to like completely get this <clears throat> for a couple weeks. I don't think they're going to know exactly like who their best receivers are. I don't think that J.K. Dobbins is going and this offensive line are going to totally be dominant like every Saturday for a while. But I think you see the talent, and I think the ability to like flash and sort of have highs and lows based on emotional things. And and I think Ryan Day is going to be on him a little bit this week of like, man, come on, you, you know, we didn't do anything after the first quarter offensively. The second team defense let down. I think they might get like hyped up for this, play really well, and then everyone's going to be like, they're a playoff team. And then like next week at Indiana, they'll go to Indiana and like play like crap. And Indiana will practically beat them. And then they'll come back and they'll like stop Miami of Ohio. And then they'll go to Nebraska. You know, like that's what I think is going to happen. But I think it's very possible in that up and down sort of first maybe eight games of the season that I'm expecting that coming off a win that had some things you can work on. And that there's some weird motivation stuff, and Luke's coming in with his guys, and they have that they just might drop like 55 on him, and that we might be looking at like a wow, we thought it was a game, and all of a sudden it's 55 17. I think that's possible based on talent because the flashes that we saw, the flashes are there. I'm just not sure when the flashes are going to show up. And so, you know, it's like you can't have it both ways. I think you guys could be right too. I think. I don't think it's impossible that they could lose, but I'm certainly not going to pick them to lose. And I think like bounce back is a possibility. The one thing that I'm intrigued by is I really think there are some playmakers on this defense that we haven't seen the full scope of yet. And if, if they can come out and limit the way Cincinnati runs the ball, the way they did against Florida Atlantic, maybe not to that extent, because obviously Florida Atlantic was pretty much smothered at times. But if they can come out and limit the way they run the ball, make them throw the ball. Now you're opening things up for Chase Young to tee off on guys. You're opening up things for the rest of this defensive line, which sounds like they're going to have um, even more depth. They're going to have some of their true defensive linemen, or true defensive ends, I should say, back in those positions. Now you can move Jay Young back inside to you know use his pass rush skills, three technique. It just opens up a lot of things, potentially. And then you, the more you can put teams into those third and long situations or even earlier than that force them to throw you're giving these cornerbacks these safeties these these really talented guys in secondary that we've been talking about for a while well me only a couple weeks but you guys have been talking about for a while um it gives them more chances to make plays on the ball i think that's the scenario that leads into what you're talking about where things just kind of start rolling downhill and, and all of a sudden it gets away from them i agree so listen um I want to get into your questions, but there's there's a couple little things I want to get into first. And before we do that, let's take a quick break here on Buckeye Talk. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Buckeye Talk Pod, at Stephen underscore Means, at NW Baird, at Doug Maurice. We'll come back in like a third of a second. All right, so that's good. I just was making sure the sound was okay. So, so we're back. And so let's uh, quickly tell the story before we get into some questions from our Project Tech subscribers. We did the post-game podcast uh, on Saturday from a concourse at Ohio Stadium. Um, in the past, w- when I've been there, we've come down from the press box. They close the press box usually about four hours after the game, which is reasonable. People have to go home and, you know, you can't stay there all night. 
So in the past, we've come down from the press box, and then we have gone out like towards the field, and in the, in the stands, we do like a video stand-up and do a little bit of work in the stadium before we left. So I sort of thought, like, that's fine. We'll do that. And then we went in, we grabbed some folding chairs, and we sat in the concourse, and we did the, pods, the podcast for the postgame, which, of course, I said would go no longer than 45 minutes, went like an hour and five minutes. But you guys know how we operate by now. So we get done. We put the chairs back, and we go to leave, and everything's locked. And we are trapped in Ohio Stadium. So what did you guys think of that? What did you think of being trapped? And Nathan had to drive back to Indianapolis that night. And he was trapped in Ohio Stadium for an hour. Did you want to throw my body down a trash chute at some point? Well, You've, you've I, never I, been there. This is your first game. I've been here for 15 years. I should have had this stuff figured out by now. That was mostly my thought, was that how did I get into this situation? I'm, I, I felt like it was the blind leading the blind because... You guys are supposed to know where you're going. You guys have been in Ohio Stadium many, many, many more times than I had. This was my first time since 2000, whenever it was that Purdue almost beat Ohio State there. With 2012. 2012. So my first time in seven years inside Ohio Stadium. And uh, and, and suddenly uh, it's locked up like Fort Knox and I'm, I'm stuck inside. And Stephen and I are, are trying to determine at what point we're going to have to... Um, you know, turn to the Donner Party and, uh, and and feast on on Doug for sustenance. And we were thinking like ten thirty, eleven o'clock, probably max was mm-hmm. when that decision was going to be made. So um, it was a harrowing uh, hour, but uh, we made it through. For the record, yes, we are saying Doug would have been the first one eaten, um, without question. Well, I have, I have a question about that, but continue. Mm-hmm. Well, secondly. I wasn't, I mean, I was annoyed that we were stuck in there mainly because I was trying to climb over objects and it just wasn't going my way because, like, Ohio State has literally made it impossible for somebody to break into a football field. It's a football field, not a bank. Well, I mean, it makes a lot of money, but not a bank, a football field. And they have made it virtually impossible to break into this thing. So, people who actually want to break in, you're not going to be able to do it. Now, what did make me mad is finally figuring out. The easiest way to get out of here was a door that's been unlocked this entire time. And it's probably unlocked so that people who are left behind can get out. And it took me trying to climb over the gate and realize, wait, I don't have to climb over this. This is already unlocked. So that's what I was more irritated with. Yeah, we figured it out. The the great Jerry Emig from Ohio State, we called him, told him we were trapped. He was not particularly pleased, but of course he's the nicest man uh, in college football. So he said he'd come let us out. And then Steven figured a way out before Jerry had to come get us. So it was very odd. Um, everybody's okay. I think there were points where we probably could have climbed over something and escaped and not been killed, but probably broken something yeah. maybe or torn a ligament or something. And, and at some point we had to get Nathan back to Indianapolis. So like me breaking my ankle might've been worth that at some point. We didn't reach that point. Thank goodness. It would have been worth it to me. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like if like you would have like just snapped my ankle in half, like after 15 minutes, if we could have gotten you back home, you had a long drive. It's reasonable. So that was what happened. And so also, by the way, I think I've been in this building this late before, but I'm not sure. So it's possible we're going to get locked in this building by the end of this podcast. At least we're aware of that. Okay, but if we get locked in here, we don't have to eat you. We can just break into this little cafe over and eat some food. That's true. So this is the thing I wanted to ask. Do you guys think that I would be delicious? It's not a matter of flavor at that point. It's just... It's just, yeah, it's just sustenance. It's just 
being able to survive to the next morning. I think I would be delicious, but I would be dead, so it wouldn't matter. All right, let's get to some questions. I have a big thing I want to talk about in terms of Luke Fickle and Ryan Day, um, but let's get to some of the podcast questions from the tech subscribers. You can subscribe. If you go to cleveland.com slash OSU, there's a big banner at the top that you can figure out how to subscribe uh, to be a Project Text member for three ninety nine a month. I send you a couple texts a day. Literally, I was sending a text today while Ryan Day was at the podium talking. I'm sitting in the front row. Ryan Day is talking, and I'm texting you not just what he says but what it means and why it's important. You don't have to go on Twitter. You don't have to wait for a story a couple hours later. I'm telling you the most – you don't have to watch the live stream while you're at work. I'm telling you the most important things Ohio State's coach is saying – in the moment, from the front row of the press conference. So, like, that's the kind of stuff you get. Not only do they not have to go on Twitter, these are things that you're not tweeting, and potentially nobody is tweeting. It's true. That is true. And, and also, yeah, I don't tweet. I don't. I only tweet, and this is part of the thing that I want to get into with Luke Fickle, is, like, I only tweet. My tweets are now are just nonsense. I just, it, most, and just, by the way, if I tweet something that's ridiculous, I don't mean it. I don't. I'm just messing around. People are always like, well, I don't know. I'm just messing around, man. Let's get to a question. Do you think the coaching staff will give Josh Proctor playing time at Jordan Fuller's expense? This is from the 310. I know Fuller is a captain, but I really believe Proctor is the more talented of the two. I had sent like a text about Josh Proctor after the game. He made that pick. I think maybe we even talked about it a little bit after the game, but there's just a lot of interest with Ryan Day and, and there was with Urban Meyer about the young guy versus the older guy, is there any part of you that thinks it would make sense to give Josh Proctor, who's in his second year here, some playing time at the expense of senior captain Jordan Fuller? No, not with that specific situation, just because Jordan Fuller is also one of their best players. It's not like he's – this is – no, I'm just going to say It's not like the tough Borland situation where it's like, eh – they're kind of equal. One's just older, and he's a captain. No, Jordan Fuller is one of the best defensive players on his team. He's a second-team preseason AP All-American. So not at that expense there where you're taking one of your best players off the field. Yeah, and you could you could extend this question to any number of other positions. You could extend this question to um, you know Luke Farrell and Jeremy Ruckert. You could extend this question to Brandon Bowen and Nicholas Petit-Frere. You could extend this discussion to other people who's, who aren't just coming to, to mind right now. Probably the, the, the Mike Linebacker situation. And, and here's the thing. Talent flashes, and that's what we saw. You know, that was an incredible interception, I thought, that, that Proctor made there. But talent does not equal consistency on its own. That's a, usually a byproduct of uh, maturity and sometimes experience and sometimes just intangibles that certain guys have that others don't. I'm not saying those other guys don't have that in, the, in these cases. But you want the guys who are going to consistently play the best on the field all the time. It's when those two things kind of sync up over time that you get something truly special. And maybe those guys can build into that. But I think right now, uh, just from what we're hearing from these coaches, is that in a lot of these situations, they're even sort of like tacitly acknowledging that maybe some of these other guys have more quote-unquote talent, but they are erring on the side of who produces and does what they're supposed to do consistently over the, the the flashes that they might get from some of these other guys. I if you have really good players who aren't playing, that means you're good. Like this is what good programs have. Thing, yeah. Like it's not and there are a lot of people who want to compare Josh Proctor to Malik Hooker. And um 
you're going to get that opportunity with the single high safety and some of the sideline to sideline stuff. And it felt like Malik Hooker could cover the field by himself. I think that's, I mean, that's super high praise like that. I mean, like nobody is Malik Hooker right now. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that Jordan Fuller can't be that also. He didn't play much single high safety last year. I don't think he had his best year last year. But there's a lot of stuff that didn't happen with the defense last year that a lot of people are ascribing that to the defensive coaches. And so I think if you believe in Jeff Halfley and you believe in Jordan Fuller, who is like a great Buckeye and a super hardworking, smart like dude who's also a really good athlete, let's let Jordan Fuller see what he can do. Josh Proctor made that play. Jordan Fuller didn't have a chance to make a play like Josh Proctor made. I don't, I'm not so sure Jordan Fuller wouldn't have made the exact same play. It's just nobody, they didn't throw to the receivers. They threw to the tight ends the whole time. So, yeah. so I think we need to let Josh, we need to let Jordan Fuller have a chance to be Jordan Fuller first. But Malik Hooker and Marshawn Lattimore both didn't play much their first two years. Some of theirs was injury related. And then they were starters for the first time their third years at Ohio State were basically all Americans and went to the first round of the draft. So maybe that's what Josh Proctor will do. And then part of you says, oh, and I had some response from people of, oh, I can't believe Malik Hooker didn't play ahead of Tyvis Powell in 2015, right? Because Ohio State in 2014 had two really good safeties in Tyvis Powell and Von Bell. They won a national championship. Both those guys came back in 2015. There was even some idea of like, would would uh, would Tyvis come back in 2016? And he, and he didn't. But that is not like a great regret of Ohio State football. Like, you know, Ohio State football should have made the national championship game in 2015. The reason they didn't make it is not because they played Tyvis Powell over Malik Hooker. And it is not some great injustice to Malik Hooker that in his second year of the program, he didn't get to play over the guy who was the defensive MVP of the national championship game. You know, like sometimes you got to wait. So I think Jordan, I think they could be really good with Jordan Fuller. And I think the the greatest possible negative outcome of like Josh Proctor not taking snaps from Jordan Fuller is like Josh Proctor's really good and doesn't get to play much. But his time is definitely coming. And like on the list of great injustices in college football, that's just not like real high on my list. I always sometimes wonder like what is what, what motivates a fan sometimes to think in those ways. Like sometimes is it because well, my team didn't win 90 to nothing, so I need to look position by position and find, is is there some like guy hiding in the wings that would have actually been so dominant that the other team would have, you know what I mean? And can you do that at every position? Or is it truly, um, we see a weakness here, we see a vulnerability, and it needs to be addressed by changing the lineup? Because this early in the season, it seems... More like the former than the latter. I think people just like new and shiny things. And Josh Proctor getting an interception, the way he got that interception is a new and shiny thing. Who doesn't like new and shiny things? But it, I will say this, too. And it kind of goes to what Doug was saying. And I think what we are all saying a little bit was that they flashed these. The, like the, the Josh Proctor interception that you saw, I'm sure they saw something like that in preseason camp. Or they saw something like that in the spring. I mean, th- these guys make those kinds of plays in practice, too. And there's still a reason why this coaching staff which is full of like veteran guys with who are used to seeing NFL players and evaluating NFL players and knowing what it takes to be the very best football players in the country, they still put the starting lineup the way they did. And I, I, to some extent, I mean, it's our it's our job to critique that and scrutinize that. But this, again, to this early in season, I, I sort of kind of give them the benefit of the doubt on that. 
question from the 864 area code was the first question in after I put out the call on text. I'm curious to see how Ohio State approaches this game. Is this just another game, or is there actual fire buildup for this one? There will be fire on the Cincinnati side. I hope the Buckeyes match that intensity. Question, do you think the play calling on both sides will be the actual offense, defense, or more of the vanilla looks we saw last week? So let's back into that a little bit. Do you think they held back? I th- well, I think they did. Jeff Halfley no. basically said it after the game, and I thought Ryan Day here on Tuesday sort of indicated that Justin Fields, too, indicated some of that as well offensively, mm-hmm. right? That that wasn't the full arsenal of what Ohio State can be on either side of the ball. Yeah, but when your team, if you're a fan and your team's up twenty-eight to nothing, do you want them giving away a lot? Right for coming weeks. I mean, no, you got it right. I think it's smart, but it's it's one of those things of in the evaluation in the moment, it's always like, well, that looked like it could have been better. Was it not as good as it could have been on purpose, or what? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when we're trying to evaluate it. Even though I just said that I wouldn't be surprised like if Ohio State wins by 45, do you think Ohio State, and this sort of gets to the question, do you think Ohio State is going to basically, for the most part, have to give the best it has against Cincinnati, or do you think Cincinnati is still the kind of opponent where it's like, well, we don't want to show show them anything that like we want to save for Nebraska or Michigan State? No, not in this situation. I think you can do that week one when you're playing a Florida Atlantic where – the coaches even admitting that this is going to be, you know, a massacre of a game. Next week, I think they're going to have to show a little something. I don't think they're going to have to show the entire, you know, arsenal of what it is. But they can't go vanilla in the second halfway through the second quarter the way they did that yet um, on Saturday. Well, but let's be clear: if against Florida Atlantic, if things had not started the way they did, if Justin Fields had had stepped on a lineman's ankle as he was breaking off that fifty-one yard touchdown run and just fell and was down, and they only settled for a field goal there. And if he didn't hook up on one of those, if he overthrows a receiver, you know what I mean? Like, if, if they're not up 28 to nothing, that's what sort of affected some of the play calls that came after that. I think, now, the coaches did talk a little bit about feeling like there were some letdowns in here. Coaches and players have talked about that a little bit, that there maybe still needed to, maybe there was a little bit of lag there. But in terms of just the the, the game approach, holding things back, I think that only happens after you're up 28 to nothing. So it's not like if it had been 14-14 in the third quarter against Florida Atlantic that Ohio State's like, well, we could really put our foot on the throat here, but we need to really worry about what Michigan State's going to see two months from now. Like, they, they would have done what they had to do to win. They'll do that again on this coming Saturday. But I think if you find yourself in a similar situation, 35-7 to 7 in the third quarter or whatever, you know, you don't need to open up everything. At that point, it is kind of about managing the win. You know, getting the win and having something still to hold back to, to use later is more valuable than running up the score, I think. No, I, I think that's right. You know, if, yeah, if they get up big, then they, they'll hold back some more. I think they will. Um Ryan Day was sort of asked a lot of these type of questions on Tuesday, sort of about how how much do you want to talk to your team about Luke Fickle? How much do you explain how much stuff means? Um, I don't think – like there are a couple guys, like Davon Hamilton was one of those guys who was recruited by Luke Fickle. And I sort of wanted – I don't know if I'm going to get to it this week, but – the thing about Luke when he was here was I felt like he always was a guy who pushed for the three-star Ohio kids. Late in the process, when Urban was going national, I think Luke Fickle helped get Darren Lee here. Uh, Luke Fickle, when he was the coach for one year, pulled a lot of those guys, Pat Elfline and Tyvis Powell. I think Joshua Perry was in there. A lot of really good Ohio kids who would you know, like just want to go to Ohio State no matter what. But I think Luke on that staff, I have always been a proponent for save a couple spots at the end of a class for the three-star late-developing Ohio kids. I think Luke pushed that agenda more than anybody else on that staff. And when I asked Hamilton about it today, he said he thinks having a guy on the staff who's like a, 
an alum of the school, is from Ohio, helps with that stuff. I think that Brian Hartline fills that role right now for this staff. I do think it's important. There was a time when Urban Meyer started here. I think they had eight of their nine assistant coaches were from Ohio, and they trumpeted that fact. And, you know, like right now, like Jeff Halfley's not from Ohio, and Larry Johnson's not from Ohio, and Mike, well, actually, Mike Yersich is from Ohio. Um, And so is Al Washington. And Al Washington's from Ohio. And sometimes it's like a nice bonus. It's like when you have it, it's great. I think they like that. When you're there looking at guys, maybe it gives a guy an edge if there's several good coaches. Um, I was interested in them bringing in Marcus Freeman. I thought Marcus Freeman was a candidate for the job that Al Washington got when they were looking to reshape this defensive staff. And you're looking for a co-defensive coordinator, and I think you would have had to give give Marcus co-defensive coordinator to get him to leave Cincinnati. Um, I thought Marcus Freeman would have been a very reasonable hire here, and, and they didn't do that. They went with Al Washington again, who has Columbus roots, didn't go to Ohio State, but has Columbus roots. So... Luke is very important to Ohio State, but but it, my guess is, other than the guys who either played for him or were recruited by him, I don't think that I don't think it's about Luke Fickle the way Ryan Day will talk to the rest of the team. You know what I mean? Like I don't think Justin Fields cares that Luke Fickle is Cincinnati's coach. How much do you think that should? is or will be in the minds of the Buckeyes who, who like don't have a personal connection to Luke. Why would you spend any time on that at the expense of teaching them football things that will help them beat the opponent on Saturday? I just I, I don't see the trade-off there as being a positive one. I want I would want players spending as much time as possible. I mean, that's kind of the thing that either it motivates them or it doesn't. But if you were not recruited by, or, or, or if you weren't part of this program when Fickle was here... What impact does it really have on you? I, I don't know. That, that's getting in the weeds a little bit. I think I would just rather – I want my – if I were Ryan Day, I'd want all my assistants and myself spending as much time as I could on X's and O's things and technique things and things that maybe don't even have anything to do with Cincinnati at all. We're, 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 you can look at the film and see every position on the field, something somebody needs to do better this week. So that's where all my time and energy would be spent. And if they among themselves have some sort of – because they know people from Cincinnati, they know people who play for the Bearcats. Some of them are from Cincinnati themselves, and for whatever reason, might have some kind of agenda there. I don't know. Let let that happen organically with amongst the team. I don't know that that's something you necessarily stoke this week. Okay, so let so let me go to this second thing, and I'll see what you guys think of this. This remains one of the more amazing stats uh, for Ohio State football, and it's one that comes okay. Up I know where you're going with this, time. and this is one that I maybe would lean on. Ohio State has won 41 consecutive games versus in-state schools, dating back to a 7-7 tie with Worcester in 1924. Mighty Worcester. And their last loss in-state was to Oberlin, 7-6 in 1921. Does that matter? Is that something that Ryan Day should and will mention this week? Um, I'm going to go no. Oberlin is not even an FBS school anymore. They're a D3 school at this point. I think I know someone who played uh, the Oboe, I think, that went to Oberlin. I think it's a very good Oboe college. It's a, I mean, That could be wrong. That could a, be wrong. I mean, it's, I mean, it's probably a solid school. But, like, yeah, it's cool to be able to say, listen, now we're at 42 there. But, like, uh, I don't think that should be the – like, uh, that's not the really the motivation in there. You want to continue to get better. I think part of it is the fact that – 
if we look at some of the starters on this team, I don't know. Like this, obviously, this is offhand. I actually have to go look at this. I don't know how many of these starters are actually from Ohio. Were actually recruited by Luke Vickle. So I don't know how much of that really matters to guys who weren't who aren't from Ohio and don't really care that much about Cincinnati guys. You mean, or Ohio State guys? Ohio State guys. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how much that's like important to. It's cool to be able to say, yeah, we made that 42 now, but like, I don't think that's necessarily that important of a thing. See, that is the one that I think I would bring up more than anything specific to Fickle or Cincinnati. That I would let, if, I would let that happen organically if that's something that players on this team already care about. But the other thing, I, this is something that you kind of get to brand your universe, your program with, brand your team with. You know, this is a place that's trying to trademark the the and the Ohio State University. So it means something to be the dominant program in this state. And I know that the college football landscape has changed a lot since Oberlin and Worcester were playing Ohio State in varsity college football or whatever you want to say. But there are a lot of other Division One programs in this state, including the one they're playing this Saturday, including the one they're playing two Saturdays after that. And these these are programs that they want to continue to have this like decided, lopsided dominant advantage over. I want to add one more thing to that. This would be cool if we were in Michigan or Alabama or California or even South Carolina. You know, schools that have multiple like power okay. five right. I'm gonna interrupt teams. you. So let me, I want to ask this question. Okay. What do you think the reaction will be if Cincinnati beats Ohio State? Oh, okay, Saturday? yeah. No, okay, fine. It's, it's cool. It's a cool thing. And no, it wouldn't be okay if Cincinnati beat Ohio State on Saturday. But do you think the reaction of Cincinnati beating Ohio State would be different than if, uh, um, I mean, than if Purdue beat Ohio State? You know, Purdue does beat Ohio State I know. pretty regularly. <laughs> yeah, that was for you. <laughs> I think I'll say this. Not a, I'm not a Purdue alum, by the way. I just happen to have watched them a lot in the yeah. last seven, 13 years. Yeah. I think that the reaction would be crazier if Cincinnati beat Ohio State just because it's Cincinnati's not supposed to beat Ohio State. But I think it would be more impressive if, like, an Alabama had a 41-game winning streak against schools in their state because one of those schools is Auburn. Okay, so I I completely disagree with everything Stephen has said about this. And, okay. And sort of what – when Dayton beat Ohio State in basketball in the Big Ten tournament, the headline – What's that? They didn't beat him in the Big Ten tournament. I mean, in the, in the NCAA, NCAA tournament, tournament, the first round of the NCAA tournament in Buffalo. Um, Ari and I were driving back from that. We ran out of gas and – and we had what? to walk. You're making me not want to get in the car. And I want to go places Wait, with you, man. We <laughs> got picked up by a guy who drove us to a gas station in Buffalo. Um, and he was telling us a story about how he used to like work in concrete or something. And like his pores were filled with, with concrete. Okay. When Dayton beat Ohio State <laughs> in basketball in the NCAA tournament, the headline in the Dayton Daily News the next day, was like the Dayton University. The University of Dayton beats Ohio State. When anybody in this state, and I think it's actually the reverse of what you said, Stephen, it's not about the number of wins. It's the fact that this is Ohio State's state. And it's going to happen eventually. And we've talked about it in the past. They've been very lucky with some of the Mac schools they played. They've always, like, they never played... Miami with Ben Roethlisberger. They never, they didn't play like Toledo when Toledo. They've always, they've been like a year off sometimes. I'm mm. like, they'll play a really good Mac program the year after they're really good. After the really good coach leaves or the really good player leaves. Shout out to Ken State. 
So some of this, some of this is luck. Like they get Kent State when Kent State stinks. They didn't have to play the Hazel Kent State teams nope. that were good. It will be a monstrous day the day that Ohio State loses an in-state game. And so I agree. I think what you were saying. I think this is a motivating factor because it's like protect your house, just protect your state. And the fact that they're not even, and Cincinnati's been close. Cincinnati's been close a couple times. They weren't that close in 2014. They've been down to like last second field goal close before. So I actually think this is something that is worth talking about because the day that Ohio State loses an in-state game is going to be a day that it's not going to be, it's going to be a really unfun day to wear scarlet and gray. Well, this is also one of those things that they've done this to themselves a little bit. I mean, this is something that they've attached to this program, to this school, but especially the football program, you know, with, with the alums going on Monday Night Football and saying it, and it's just something that this, I, from the outside, only being here a couple weeks, but something that it feels like the whole athletic program has kind of embraced. And, the you know, it's something that, frankly, a lot of other schools, throughout the Big Ten, you get a lot of eye rolls about it, I'll be honest with you. But I think if you're at Ohio State, especially if you're in the athletic program, you're in this football program, you use it to your advantage. You use it as like a, a motivating tool, as a brand. That's really the only positive that can come out of it in some ways because it, it does seem a little arrogant to people. But I think if you if you channel it in the right way, um, it helps you maybe stave off what would be a potentially crushing loss. Like, And that's the other thing you got to remember is any one of those losses – it's very difficult to imagine a Ohio State season where they get upset by Bowling Green and still end up in a college football playoff or in a in the kind of you know postseason scenario that they want to be in. Uh, let's move on to can you divulge how many people pay for the text and how many download the podcast? Keep up the great work uh, from the new guy Nick. Uh, I think if I divulged how many people pay for the text, the bosses would be. <laughs> mad um i think it's a good number and i've told you guys this before that we're trying this at cleveland.com like for i think our whole company across the country to to try this stuff and i will tell you that the ohio state text group is the largest one so like you're awesome it's a good number um they're happy with it they would like it to grow and so i hope it continues to grow it really in my honest opinion it hasn't bumped up as much since the football season started, since I maybe thought it would. Um, so I, if you guys want to spread the word, I can't give you the number. I wish I could, and if I ever get to go ahead someday to give it, but I will tell you, uh, go to cleveland.com slash OSU, find the banner to pay for this thing, and try it out because people seem to like it. I'll say, as someone who came in from the outside, and I've been in this profession for a while and worked for other major national companies i was really impressed by the idea it was one of those things it was like oh why didn't someone think of this before which i think people kind of already have i don't think it's like necessarily you know reinventing the wheel but it's a really useful product i think for readers and i've been impressed by hearing how many people are doing it and i think you're gonna in the very short term see it returned in the way that we're covering this team perhaps even how i'm sitting here in the first place yeah no i mean it's like you got to make money to spend money. Some people say spend money to make money, and it's like not it's journalism. Both. No, it's both, but it's both. It is no, both. I, it is I both know. because I, I've, I've definitely seen other places that bemoan um, the fact that they can't do more. They aren't willing to put the resources there that they can get the return that, that you guys are, are or that we are now getting on this. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, we're not like we're, you know, it's not we're not financially supporting 
a reporter with the text subscriptions, you know. So right. it, it's 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 something that is helpful. We'll take it for sure. We but we you know we got to get more, and we have to make money a bunch of other ways too. But it's certainly helpful. Um, and I will tell you, and I, I will share this. I'm going to do this. I don't know how 100% reliable this tracking is, and I know it does not include anybody who listens on Spotify. Um, but as far as I know, we're getting about 10,000 downloads per episode for the for the weekly Wednesday ones. And, and we had dipped for a time. Part of it was in the summer, and like we're back up to 10,000, and there have been times when we've been above that. But I don't know what that means, but I'm happy with it. And I think it's pretty good, and that means that we have a loyal audience, and we appreciate you guys a lot. So... Um, from the 817, can we start the Intelligent Buck Fan Worry Index? Irrational fans are always a 10 on a scale of 1 to 5, but you make us better fans. So how worried sh should we be about Cincinnati? Scale of 1 to 10 and can't say 7. That's always good. Everybody always says yeah. 7. Ask Steven. Ask Nate. Obviously, Doug will say 15 and when we play. Nebraska, probably 25. Ha! But seriously, rate the worry. All right. 1 to 10 scale. You can't say 7. Steven, you go first. 5 for now. I think that's reasonable. Yeah, I was going to say like solid five and a half week six. I mean, it's plausible that they could lose, but it's still a, um, a, more so relative to, say, other games on schedule like Florida Atlantic and Miami of Ohio, but still a game that Ohio State, I think, should win just based on the talent disparity in these programs. I, I will say, I, I feel like I'm coming in, I don't know, I'm more like a three and a half, I think, because even, and I will say, I didn't, I didn't pick Ohio State to lose to Purdue last year. Um, I think there was somebody on the beat who might have picked it. I did say that I thought that could be close and that there could be – because I'm a Rod Dale Moore stan, right? What's that thing? What's stan even mean? Is that how the kids use that word? Stan? Steven, what's stan I, mean? I, I suppose. I'm not that much younger than you. Okay, so – Sadly. Listen up. <laughs> you, you act a lot younger. Okay, listen up, <laughs> you old folks out there. Yeah. So Stan is is pretty much a super fan, and it derives from a song. You know who Eminem the rapper is? He's like the only rapper I know. Oh. They had the thing where he uh, everybody wore a white T-shirt and walked into that music show because he he sang that song about the crazy guy, Stan, right? That's because yeah. that's why. Ah! Bingo. Are you serious? Yeah. That's what that means? His name is Stan, and he's a super fan who's like literally derived and does all this. Now, it's obviously everybody's not like that, but that's the whole. A, a Stan is that's an, what it derives from. And like, yeah, it's an over, a, a Stan is basically an over the top fan who kind of. Does a little too much. I have a friend we call him I Stan Cam because he's such an Ohio State. I fan. thought it was like a shortening of something. Like blog is short for weblog and all that stuff. Like I thought it was like a. Can I be honest with you? Yeah. I just found out today that blog was short for weblog. Really? Okay. So we're. I have even. never heard that word before in my life, and I'm wearing a shirt. What that is? Yeah. S M H. Yeah. Oh my god, that's another thing. I have to issue a correction. Yes. This is the greatest and most embarrassing correction of my journalism career. What, shaking my head? I never, I did not think that SMH was S in my hat. My friend thought that, and I thought SMH was suck my hole. That's so much worse. It is so much worse. <laughs> so much worse. Just, that doesn't even make sense in context. You should have just There's stuck no with the context. You should have stuck sense. with the other one, honestly. 
Because it's my and it's Adam Jardy, the basketball writer for yeah. Buckeye oh, okay. Talk. He's the one who thought the in my hat thing because he and I had this conversation many years ago. And like in the middle of last week, I was like, because I read a whole. You guys listen to Malcolm Bla- uh, Gladwell's podcast mm-hmm. at all? So like Malcolm Gladwell had a whole thing about how like the whole Brian Williams thing when Brian Williams said like I was in the helicopter that got shot down. I was like, no, you weren't. Yeah, memory's unreliable. Yeah. And that like you somehow over time as you tell a story, you put yourself. And so I Brian Williams myself with S in my hat. Because that's Jardy's thing. Mine has sucked my hole, and we were both so very wrong. But I took his thing because it was better and also less nasty than mine. <laughs> but the, So in your mind, people were like pointing out something like regrettable that someone else had done. And then hashtagging it in such a way to be like very arrogantly like, that person can suck my hole. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, like, oh man, I can't believe the I can't believe the Indians bullpen suck my hole. Yeah, <laughs> it is worse. It's it says so, so much, much worse. worse. It says so much more about you than the other interpretation. Yeah, the other one was kind of like uh, silly and whatever. This yeah. is just like deep and dark. Yeah, yeah. that's me. Hey, I'm deep and dark. Okay, uh, so I'm like a three. Yeah, I'm like a three and a half. Because um, I just think. Because, like, the Rondell Moore thing, again, the thing we sort of talked about last week, do you have, like, individual NFL talent that can really burn you? And that's why even, like, in 2014, I was really, like, sort of in the bag for Gunnar Keel, that Cincinnati quarterback. He'd been a transfer guy who had bounced around mm-hmm. a lot. I think he'd been at Notre Dame at one point. Yeah. And it was like, oh, well, if you get the best of Gunnar Keel, that turns out best Gunnar Keel threw for 372 yards. It's just that Cincinnati defensively couldn't stop JT Barrett and Ezekiel Elliott, so they won the game, you know, by, by three touchdowns. Um, I just don't, I don't know that Cincinnati's there in terms of like having a dude who can scare you to that extent. And I just think it's like the the reason that I think you'd be scared of Cincinnati is like Luke. It's Luke. It's like Luke's a good coach. Luke really wants to play well when he gets here. I think Luke has a, you know, has some schematic ideas of maybe how to handle some of this stuff. But again, I think I almost think Luke would be better prepared. This is my maybe interesting point. I think Luke might be better prepared to stop the Urban Meyer offense. But like some of the stuff that you're talking about, Nathan, that you want to you're going to dig into with some of the under center stuff. I thought we saw an evolution away from the Urban Meyer offense last week, and I don't know that. I think we'll just and soon we'll reach the point where it's just it's the Urban it's the Ryan Day offense, and Ryan Day is building a lot on what Urban Meyer did. And again, last year was the anomaly. That's not the Urban Meyer offense. I'm talking about the Urban Meyer quarterback run offense, but Urban Meyer never went under center. Ryan Day is going under center a little bit. And so Luke knew that Ohio State offense. And I think Luke stopping that Ohio State offense could have been very much a real thing because Luke faced that offense every day for five years. But he hasn't faced the Ryan Day offense. And I think it might be interesting that the the Ryan Day offense might just be enough different that it negates to some extent the edge you thought Luke might have by knowing how Ohio State wants to play. That's a, that's a really good point that I'm going to unashamedly fold into my own analysis that um, will appear on cleveland.com tomorrow, perhaps. But I will say it's the corollary to what we were talking about earlier about using this sort of thing as motivation. I do think this is a scenario where if you're at Cincinnati, you do play that up. You do tell your 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 players who you know were recruited to Cincinnati sometimes at the expense of never getting a look from Ohio State, that sort of thing. Go tell them how much this game means to your coach. I, I've definitely seen examples of that in the past where that has helped teams play up a notch. And I think that could be a factor, at least early on in a game like this. It may be a, a situation where Ohio State's talent just eventually is, is too much. 
but it, it, I think it is something that a, a team in Cincinnati's scenario should use to its advantage. A question from the 740. I feel like I thought we answered this. Someone wants us to talk about Tate Martell again, about Tate Martell playing receiver at Miami. I know I read it before. I, I'm almost sure we talked about it, but like, I don't know. Do you do you do you guys think that Miami had some secret plot to play Tate at receiver, or do you think it was just that they threw him in at receiver a little bit just because he didn't win the quarterback job? They want to keep him around. From the seven four zero, I swear, I think we answered it before. We're answering it again because you think we didn't answer it. Yeah, I think. I mean, they just threw him in at receiver. He wasn't running the most complex routes out there that first game. So I think they just threw him in the game just because, like, he didn't win the job. And I think the conversation, once he knew he wasn't going to win the job, is, hey, listen, we still want you to be a part of this offense. It's just not going to be as the field general, but you can easily play wide receiver at this level. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, we can't spend too much time on Tate. That was a no. good good question. But no more Tate questions for a while, though. Uh, question, it's only one game, but two offensive keys seem apparent. Can Justin Fields learn to find pass targets faster, and can Greg Strudrawa develop a great run-blocking line? Both of those skills sometimes seem hard to develop. You have it or you don't. Andy Durham in North Carolina. You wrote about uh, sort of like the most important things Greg Strudrawa said today. He was one of the coaches that we got on Tuesday. Again, he liked what they did, and Ryan Day liked what they did. In terms of the idea of like developing a great run-blocking line, they're talking about Jonah Jackson knocking dudes over and getting nine knockdowns. Do you or, think or they're on the, the on the path to that? Yeah, I mean, or how about the, the you know the block that that Josh Myers threw the, to help spring that Justin Fields touchdown run where that guy just got just launched into space basically. I mean, they were raving about that after the game even. I mean, it's like there were some there were some big moments of the offensive line. Do I think it's a unit that's going to still have some growth together that has to happen? Absolutely. But I think the other thing that we and we've done it, and I think fans almost certainly do it. We forget a little bit that Florida Atlantic isn't like that terrible. This isn't an FCS program. This isn't a bottom feeder, even from a, a mid-major. This is a this is a team that could go win Conference USA, which isn't the same as winning the Big Ten, but it means something. I think they were and, picked third in their division in Conference USA to like be competitive, right? But yeah. I, but absolutely, I mean, they, they what, a couple of years ago they won eleven games. I think. I mean, yeah, they, two they, years ago, right? So, and they've got a good coach who presumably knows other good coaches and is going to bring them onto staff. So. You know, I thought Greg Stradauer made a good point today where, you know, they came out and just early on, Florida Atlantic tried to just man up Ohio State, beat them head on, the defensive line versus offensive line, and they obviously couldn't. They just got crushed. So then when Florida Atlantic then started going maybe to more of a finesse look, going to, you know, employing better technique, different technique, that forced Ohio State to adjust a little bit. And he was happy with the way for that week their offensive line adjusted. But as much as he was praising them today, he was def- was asked later in the thing, you know, later in the press conference, um, you know, do you still, does, does this group still have a lot to grow? And he's like, oh my God, yes. Like we have still so far to go. There's, there's still so much more that they have to learn to play together. And there's still a lot, I think, that each individually they have to get better from a technique standpoint. I think they were really solid in the run game. I think the pass protection is where they really need to grow the most. The run game, guys got to hit holes and stop dancing through holes. The pass protection, Justin Fields took off early a lot, but some of the times he just he was getting chased. So he had to kind of take off in a way that I don't know if this was last year, those aren't sacks just because of what what – Justin Fields is in comparison to what Dwayne Hassan is. So I think the run blocking was great. Passing, pass protection just has to get better. I'm also new to this whole concept of the champions, but if if that's something that means something to you guys, if you think that the, 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 the coaches know what they're doing when they name champions, the entire offensive line was graded out as champions from 
the first game. None of the not not J.K. Dobbins, the offensive line. Yep. So, and, and I did send a text. I, I and maybe I'm just terrible at this. I, I rewatched the game and I actually thought that J.K. ran okay. And I thought that there were some times when there just wasn't much there. And that's not what the coaches think. J.K. They think J.K. needs to run harder. And they thought the line played pretty well. You know, and and did get a push. I thought they didn't get as much of a push. You know, after the, the in the second half as they did in the first half. But again, this is what the coaches are saying: line good, J.K. needs to be better, and Fields needs to make some better reads too. And some of that is pre-snap stuff. So when they're judging, they may be winding it back to be like, okay, well, what was decided pre-snap? Okay, based on what was decided pre-snap, based on how our quarterback, our center, whoever read things, now we grade based on how things played out from there. I I don't know if that's how they do it, but that could be how they're doing it, which under those circumstances, if you're grading on a little bit of a curve play-to-play, that makes more sense. Pod question from Mick in Vancouver, Washington. I understand from listening to several podcasts regarding the game that they went vanilla on both sides of the ball after jumping out to a huge first quarter lead. Should there be consideration of how this win looks when it comes to select, selecting playoff teams? It shouldn't, but it always does. I, I think, yes, every week matters. Yes, the committee supposedly looks at everything. I, this is going to be so far down the list. of. I think it might matter, you know. Cincinnati is like a real team, right? So I think it, it's going to matter for the committee more. Do you beat if you beat Cincinnati fifty-five to ten? That's going to matter more than if you beat Cincinnati in a last-second field goal. I don't know that the going vanilla against Florida Atlantic is going to have any effect. You did a playoff ranking that you're going to do every Tuesday, Nathan. Of they're not going to do playoff rankings to the middle of the year, but where did you have Ohio State in your playoff ranking if they did playoff rankings after week one? Yeah, I had them in the. I can't remember exactly which spot. Would I have them eighth? I think. Um, assuming Michigan wins a Big Ten, which is kind of what I had picked. But I was basically trying to base it more not on what I would pick, more on what was actually out there. But I also think this the, the Florida Atlantic, this is a, a fine margin of victory if Florida Atlantic then goes on and has a good season. That's the other X factor here, it's, and it's out of Ohio State's control. What kind of a season does Florida Atlantic end up having? I mean, it's, it's more it, there's a more direct correlation in basketball where what looks like a good win early on that'll help you for the tournament resume. Sometimes you schedule for an NCAA tournament resume, putting certain teams on your schedule, and then they just don't follow through. They have injuries, they have ineffectiveness, and, and those wins don't end up helping you the way you thought they would. Um, or, or the losses end up being even worse than they, you thought they would be. So it's, it's kind of the same thing at play here. If, if Florida Atlantic goes on and has a pretty strong year, um, again, it's not going to be the same as beating uh, you know Nebraska on the road, probably, if they can do that. But it... it it helps that win have more value. Yeah, I, I'll say that you had him at fifth just for the sake of you know. I did have him fifth. Yes, you had him fifth. Now I'll say this: Alabama had a convincing win week one. We all nobody thought they wouldn't. Clemson had a convincing win week one. We no one thought they wouldn't have a convincing win. Georgia had a convincing win, and we all thought they would. We think those are the three best teams in college football. I think everybody's in agreement with that. Oklahoma, they won by eighteen points. Jalen Hurts was great, but they won by eighteen points. So. It's week one. Those are two teams. They were fourth on your list, and Ohio State was fifth. Those two teams have transfer quarterbacks who just got here within the last eight months, and they both won by kind of a small margin in comparison to the other three teams that were in your top five. I think Ohio State's fine, just like I think Oklahoma's fine. I don't think anybody can base what they're going to look like in week 12 based off what they did in week one with a brand-new guy who wasn't even on your roster last season. From the 614, can Jayshon Cornell maintain this type of production similar to what we got from Draymond Jones last year? Um, you were sort of asking some, some questions about Jayshon uh, today, Nathan. D- you know, d- did that look like a guy that you think is 
ready to do something like this on a week-to-week basis. Well, the interesting wrinkle is, though, that uh, Larry Johnson today said he prefers him at three technique because he, he likes having someone with his pass rush skills at three technique, and they're going to move him back to three technique as soon as they can. So it changes potentially matchup to matchup what kind of game he can have. It's it, it, So I think he is poised to have a really strong season. I think it makes Ohio State a lot better when you've got someone like that who you can move around as needed. Because, you know, injuries sometimes have a, a habit of reoccurring or lingering or whatever. Um, and maybe they, maybe uh, Cooper or the other defensive ends are not ready to go to the extent they need him to be on Saturday and they have to keep him at end. Um, I think you, it's also is kind of um, a bit de- determined by how well those other interior tackles are playing, but they seem to hold up pretty well on Sunday or Saturday. I think they like the depth they got there too. So I think he could have a really strong season, but it's almost more that the versatility that he has um, is as valuable as whatever the production would be. So my headline in the preseason was Ohio State football's most underrated Buckeye is finally ready to make a difference. He's the guy that I thought could go from having an okay to career to having like a, a really large impact on this team. And he told me in the preseason, uh, three technique is my position. It's where I belong. And that he has moved around, uh, but he feels this is the right spot for him. And, and the thing to remember about him and why he positions himself this way as a guy who might be ready to do something like this, he was the number 95 overall recruit in the past, in the class of 2015. He was really good friends with Justin Hilliard. And I remember when they got both those guys, and it was like a huge deal that they got this package deal. Uh, Hilliard's from Ohio, Cornell's from Minnesota, but they got to be friends like on the recruiting trail. Um, and Hilliard's had all these injury problems. Hilliard's still out. He's, his career has been derailed by just terrible injury luck. And Jay Sean Cornell, I think, had some injury. But, like, Jay Sean Cornell kind of just, like, didn't pop for a while. And he kind of – the moving around didn't help. And he sort of admitted that he wasn't – maybe he didn't have the seriousness of purpose that he needed to have. And so, like, this guy is a – and I know you throw the recruiting rankings out the window when they get on campus. This dude is a is a national top 100 talent who's a fifth-year senior. And so I think a lot of this makes sense. And so the question about Draymond Jones, Draymond Jones was a pass-rushing three-technique. They've had some other guys who could do that. Adolphus Washington was like that. Michael Bennett at times could be that. That's a really valuable thing to have. And, like, Draymond is is – I mean, you, you missed Nick Bosa all of last year anyway, basically, except for two and a half games. Draymond's the biggest loss on this defense. They have nine starters back. The guys they're missing are Draymond and Kendall Sheffield. And, like, yeah, I, I think it's possible that Jay Sean Cornell can have that kind of— Draymond Jones was their best defensive lineman last year for stretches when Chase Young was battling ankle injuries. And when Nick Bosa went out in the TCU game, Draymond Jones went nuts. Draymond Jones is, like, really good— I think Jay Sean Cornell has the potential to give them like 90% of Draymond Jones. And if he can do that, I think it, I think it changes this defense. And I think you saw a flash of that because he can play end just like Draymond could have. Draymond was an end and we've written stories about that in the past. The best way they can find good pass rushing tackles is to find high school ends and make them tackles when they get here. And that's what happened with Draymond. That's what's happening with Jay Sean Cornell. He still has that end in him, but his best thing is to bring end skills inside and, and I, I think that is absolutely on the table for him this year. Yeah, just one of the things in general that I'm watching about that defensive front is what does what do those other three spots do? 
playing off of Chase Young or playing off of the attention that Chase Young is getting. That seems to be really, to me, still one of the key things that determines whether Ohio State is in that playoff competition or if they're that next tier back. More of a comment than a question from the 614, but it's interesting that Saturday's game seemed to confirm 9-3 and three in your mind. Doug, you idiot. They didn't have that part. I did. While the opinion of Ohio State seems to have risen in the eyes of the national media, based on some national articles that I've seen, they seem to be viewed as more of a legitimate national title contender after Saturday. So I will say this, and the answer is that national people have no idea what they're talking about. And, like, I, of course I don't mean that, but I also do mean that. National Nobody, people can't watch every game. No, no. They, know, they know 5% of what I know about Ohio State. And, like, you guys do too, but, like, I've been doing this for 15 years. Like, like I'm wrong about a lot of stuff, but, like, sort of the ins and outs of, like, how to read the program and, like, the day-to-day stuff, like, they, they don't know more. And that's fine. And so they see a highlight of Justin Fields throwing a touchdown pass to Ben Victor because three defensive backs conked their heads together like coconuts. Like, that's not it. I swear, I promise you, like, that's not how it's going to – that doesn't matter. Because Chris Chuganoff would have thrown the same pass. Like, I I, I get you have to hit the open guy, but that's not what it's about. There's a million other things that it's about. And so Justin Fields did some good things, but I also thought I saw some things that just need to be better because you can see the day. And maybe the game that's not being talked about, and I know people – and maybe there's a question coming about this. Like, I've I've been high in Nebraska. I've been talking about – I had Sam McEwen from – the Nebraska beat on in the summer and Sam was like super high on Adrian Martinez and super high on Nebraska. And people were like, that was a great podcast interview, but what's up with that Nebraska dude. And then like, I basically absorbed everything he said. And I was like, yeah, I agree with that too. I think Nebraska is awesome. I think Adrian Martinez is awesome. I don't know how good their defense is going to be. Maybe Nebraska. Even their offense didn't look that good. And they had a bad game. And it's like, you know, we, we can play the what about game of like, well, if you think Justin Fields didn't look good, well then what's up with Nebraska? And I get it. They didn't look very good. I, I'm, I imagine they'll be better in week five, just like I imagine Justin Fields will be better in week five. But I just I just thought there's a lot of natural talent that flashed, but I thought you saw ways. Again, I still – like Olave is really good, and he ran like a really – he smoked the dude on that route, right? Chris Olave's route on that touchdown yeah. was, was awesome. Um, they're not Clemson. They're not Bama. They're just, they're just not right now. They're still not. Okuda looked awesome. Okuda looked like a top ten pick. I get that. Um but they're going to be strained in different ways by different teams. And I'm just waiting. And, and I want to get to some Luke stuff sort of that I want to talk about that's not from a question. But I'm just telling you, like, D'Antonio, in, after the, the Nebraska game, when they come home in week six, Michigan State, D'Antonio's going to have a plan for these guys. And I think Luke is going to have some version of a plan for these guys. And I don't know if Nebraska's going to have it defensively or not. Penn State looked really good. I think Wisconsin's going to have a plan for these guys. And they're going to have to have an adjustment off the adjustment. And I'm just saying, like, Justin Fields' world is going to get a lot more difficult and a lot more complicated. And when people are chasing him and he has to make quick decisions and make quick decisive throws or make big-time runs where he doesn't have a whole six bodies wide – the Big Ten is pretty decent. And I know like Northwestern went out and didn't look very good against Stanford. And I get it. Guys have opening weeks and they don't look great. It's just going to get a lot harder. And so I'm just – I get he's I get he accounted for five touchdowns. Like, it's, like that's not it. And if national guys are getting wowed by stats and, and highlights, that's not the full analysis. Just like I can't name a single player on Cincinnati. You know? But I, I know everything about Ohio State football. So that's the deal. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, we, I don't know if we really talked about this in this 
capacity after the game on Saturday, but there's a lot of consternation out there among the fan base about the, the lull, the being up 20 to nothing, and then things seemed to take a, a, a step back. Is that, in a way, in the long run for Ohio State, was that almost the best thing that could happen? Because if you win that game 63 to nothing last week, that is a harder thing to try to get through to your team, potentially, that they did actually have a lot of flaws and setbacks in the middle of that game. So the the hard thing about this stuff is is, and this is just like I mean if we if I go too far down this hole we're all going to be unemployed by the time I'm done with this <laughs> opinion on things. There's a lot of things that happen with all this stuff that the result then leads you yeah. back to where exactly. well, went the thing was. So maybe I think maybe, but also the thing that happened is last year in the opener, um, Dwayne Haskins chucked it all over the place. They scored seventy seven. And also, Oregon State scored 30-whatever, and like they kind of screwed up some defensive stuff. And so you could have said, like, ah, week one, you know, whatever. It turned out that week one last year for Ohio State was exactly what their team was the whole mm-hmm. year. They had a passing game that nobody could stop, and also their defense stunk. And so, well, you don't want to overreact to week one. I don't know. Well, who's it? If you took week one in last year, you were right. Mm. If you just accepted what you saw. So, like, do we want to take, it's a lull or whatever, maybe. It also might be like, okay, if a defense plays this offensive line straight up, they're okay. If they do anything, if they switch a look up at all, these guys don't know how to block it and Justin Fields doesn't know what to do with it. Like, I think we could be having that conversation in week nine. And of course everybody gets better. But if you realize... We're gonna. They're young. They're talented, but they do, they're they don't exactly adjust very well. And Justin Fields, if you can give him different looks and make him, and it's the thing you do to any quarterback, right? I mean, it's like, oh, well, why would you play a simple, stupid defense? You want to play a, a confusing, disguising defense against against everybody. I think it's possible there are parts of what we saw Saturday that are actually going to be are absolutely going to be in the DNA of this team, just like what we saw Week One last year was in the DNA of this team. So maybe it's a good thing they had a lull. Maybe this is going to be an offense that like comes out with a good plan. And then once they get a defensive adjustment, because it's a new line and a new quarterback, maybe we're going to be talking about how they didn't adjust very well. And they're going to have lulls in the middle of every game. I think that's on the table too. And we're not going to know it until we get to week nine and then look back and decide whether week one was an exception or actually week one turned out to be the rule. I agree with that sentiment, but in the same, we can't say that, but then also say, well, the coaching staff kind of held back some things offensively because they didn't want to show everything. No, you're right. If we're saying like part of the lull is because they sort of did it on, they yeah. lulled on purpose. Yeah. Right? Cause if it's a choice, be a thing. if it's a choice, then like, no, we're not going to see that in week nine because they're not going to have that choice. But yeah, you, you are right in saying that like, there are some things that happened against Florida Atlantic that will probably happen against Michigan State. That's just we are who we are. But I've, the reason, I don't think that's a good – I don't think week one is a good game to judge them off of because of some of the decisions that were made from a scheme – from just a, a scheme and playing calling, you know, situation that aren't going to be there against Cincinnati. So that's why I think Cincinnati would be a better gauge for, say, week 10 comes around. Oh, they did that in week two as well. Yeah. No, I think I, 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 and that's what makes it hard when you're trying to judge all this stuff because you don't, you don't know any of that stuff. But um, you know, again, it's like if you try to, if you, if we're trying to figure out who's going to be right, 
We're just going to have to see what week eight tells us. But I think there's a lot of things on the table. And again, that like you don't know exactly, which is why, again, like I just am not, if, if national people are saying like, well, that's it, they're national title contenders. Like, okay, well, I don't know. I don't know that I would, that I would jump to that point. Um, from the 614, my biggest concern from game number one was the offensive line, Fields getting hit, and Dobbins dodging guys in the backfield. But I just saw the whole line graded out as a champion. What am I missing? I will say the one thing that I saw is I thought there were at least three or four plays where where J.K. had to shuffle his feet in the backfield because a dude was diving at him. And I thought he got thrown off on a couple runs by early penetration that, again, it's like, okay, if they all graded out champions and they just think J.K. didn't run hard enough, okay. But I thought there were times when he had some stuff to deal with. And, you know, not on all of the 21 carries, but there was not a, a clear wide open running space every time for him. I don't know. I don't know. Again, they're the coaches. I don't know. They're the coaches. What am I? Who am I? Do you think I'm just the, a man. Do you think that fumble was like overblown? And I don't mean like, obviously fumbling is not a good thing. I'm not sitting here and say, don't like overreact to a fumble. But do you think that that fumble is kind of like the conclusion they came to? Like, oh, that fumble was just the definition of how his entire day went. I mean, I think it's part of it. We talked about this in the video that you can find on our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, Google Ohio State, Cleveland.com, and you can subscribe to all our videos. We record players and, and coaches talking, but we also stand up and talk about stuff ourselves. And I said this in the video. I think they're doing some public criticism of JK to push him. And I think, like, of course, fumbles are unacceptable. They're doing, you know, I don't know. People are always doing the thing of making you carry a football around campus and that kind of thing. It's like, mm. you can't fumble. And it didn't look like. I don't know that I saw a great angle or anything on a replay of that. It, I mean, he didn't get crushed. He didn't have a guy. I don't think a guy punched the it ball. Like a helmet it on it, it went. It went flying as he was going into his spin move. So like J.K. Dobbins tried to spin move a little, a little bit of traffic, and the ball flew out. And like Ryan Day is just making it clear, like there is no world where that's okay. And and, and I get it, especially Week in that one. place of the field. Too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, you know, similar. Similar place on the field later in a game, later this season in Big Ten play, that's potentially devastating. So, like, of course, and I get that. But I, all, but I also think they are trying to send a message like this guy, this guy talked. Cause, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. And I would never, you know, J.K. I thought was great with us in the spring and in the mm. preseason, talking about how he didn't think he was good last year and that's going to change. And he sort of made that point very clearly. He said it. And then he didn't necessarily back it up with his play in week one. So he led with his words, and he wasn't, he was never bragging about it. He was like stating fact of saying, like, I failed, but I've changed. And I think now the coaches with their words are saying, like, did you? And so I just think there's some motivational tactics in there um, that, and, and it could be the other thing too, right? You have a veteran running back and a young offensive line, and the running game wasn't great. So is it possible that they're try they're trying to build up the young offensive line well, and gonna... challenge the veteran running back, mm -hmm. and actually there's some more culpability with the offensive line than they're letting on and less culpability with J.K., but they're trying to make a point to both groups? Well, this this was my point. I, you guys, again, have a better perspective of this because the champions thing is new to me, but... Is it only ever, like, it's it's a pure numbers thing, like somewhere there's a formula, these guys graded at the champion level, so we have to name them champions, or is there some manipulation, some um, motivation, some psychology that plays into that where they'll deprive certain guys of champion status, they'll give 
on a week to week basis, they'll give certain guys champion status to 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 play with that a little bit. You you guys, I, have... I think it's grade based, so I don't think they would make it up whole hog, but I think you can grade a little easier. I think there's an ex. I think there's also expect like they, we've seen what JK can do. We really haven't seen what this offensive line can do. So it's let's. JK is a kid, your kid who gets 4.0s all the time, and this offensive line is like the 2.7 kid. So when he gets a 3.0, you're like, oh, yeah, you got a 3.0. When JK Dobbins gets a 3.5, which is still honor roll, it's like, eh, he didn't do that well. Maybe he didn't have an honor roll game. He didn't have an honor roll game? No. No, he didn't, but like, like when you're so. When, well, no, yeah. right, but when you see. Even if he. Say he would have ran for like six yards a carry. This is a guy who's run for 7.5 yards per carry. Well, so that's still yeah, not. That's I mean, to your point, it wasn't like he was good. And there, yeah. And like he, yeah. He, yeah, it's, no, no, no. it's how much responsibility does he own for the not being great. Right. And it seems like they really, because then someone eventually in the end, Bill Rabinowitz from the dispatch, eventually in the end said to Ryan Day, because there had been sort of enough answers from Ryan Day about like, well, the offensive line was actually pretty good. We need to run harder. Yeah, the offensive line was pretty good. We need to find holes and make yards after contact. And so Bill finally said like, are you displeased with J.K. Dobbins? And he said, no, no, I'm not displeased. And then, then he sort of backed off a little bit when pushed on it. I'm not but mad, I I'm thought, disappointed. You know, like a, he was trying to make the point that he was sort of displeased. And again, I think they – I don't think they're lying. But here's the thing about all this stuff. It's right – okay, this is true. Coaches know more about football than us. That is true. This is also true. We always tell you what we think because we have no reason to right. do anything else. Mm-hmm. Coaches have an agenda every time they open their mouths to the public and to us. So, like, we're telling you this what this is what we saw. When we see it, we don't see it the same way a coach sees it. We don't see it with as much experience and as much knowledge. But we're telling you straight. Just keep in mind sometimes, just because a coach says it doesn't exactly mean that it's 100% true. No, he said after the game that he thought, he thought – J.K. Dobbins that ran hard. I asked him straight up because I didn't think J.K. Dobbins had a great Saturday after the game. It's, yeah, I thought he ran hard. He looks at the film and went complete 180 to that opinion on Tuesday when we talked to him, and it led to being asked, are you displeased with your starting running back, where on Saturday you were saying the exact opposite. Yeah, and I, I worry that between – not worry, but I, I wonder if between this and the video we did earlier that I'm going <laughs> to be displeased? branded – or I'm going to be in particular branded as some kind of – J.K. Dobbins hater. My point is, from what I've seen from his production last year, he seems like a perfectly adequate Big Ten running back. But that's not what he brands himself as. Not what he's kind of, and it's certainly not what I think at large the fan base, the people who pay attention to this program. I certainly don't think that's what they think he's supposed to be. And he probably needs to be better than that for this team to have the kind of season it wants to have. No, so I think at advance. In the Advanced Corporation and at Cleveland.com, we are very interested in branding of of writers and as you know, you we're not just providing picking, Ohio State coverage. We're roll providing, into the hatership, picking enemies and yeah, such. So, roll so like into the again, hatership. and people on this podcast, they've gotten to know. Like I thought, Bill Davis was terrible. I thought Tim Beck. Like people know that it's like a running joke on this thing. So if you <laughs> want him. to stake out a corner. For a guy who very well may wind up as the second leading rusher in Ohio State history and say, he's terrible, I think that'd be a great brand for you. I didn't say he was terrible. <laughs> but you got to <laughs> so lean in. you got to lean in. It's going to be very interesting because I've always thought he's more than adequate. 
And I know like Austin Ward from Letterman Row very much last year was like, Mike Weber's the better back. And I always thought, no, JK's the better back. Um, and I always thought Mike Weber like magically had gigantic holes to run through. And JK, a lot of times I felt like didn't have those gigantic holes. Mike Weber had more break, breakaway speed. I always would have taken JK Dobbins ahead of Mike Weber. Uh, and other people would have taken Mike Weber. Um, I would say Mike Weber, like getting drafted in the seventh round and getting cut and put on the Cowboys practice squad, like would say like, he's not, he's just okay. But I think people who, you know, if, if I'm like, JK is awesome. I said on this podcast before the season, he's better. He's going to be better than Jonathan Taylor. Yeah. That's not what he yeah. looked like on Saturday. No, he did not look much. like someone who was going to challenge Jonathan Taylor to be the best running back in the Big Ten and maybe in the country. So That, that was Doug that said that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a bit not much. the other two of us. So, I, I mean, I predicted him to run, I think, for 4,000 yards this year. I think it was 37 carries a game. I thought it was 4,000 last week. Yeah. <sighs> so, I was I mean, I, I was wrong. But, but like, I, he needs to be... And let's get to some of these questions that are, there's a lot of, as usual with this, and this is great. You guys kind of are dancing in the same area with some of these questions. There's a question that I liked. Okay, it's what's, what should you be most concerned about? So let me take this from the 616, and we'll get to your question specifically. But just like in general, how good does J.K. Dobbins have to be for this team to be really good? And, and that like specifically, could this team, team be a playoff team if J.K. Dobbins is just average. And of course, that's like Ohio State running back average, right? right. Like, if he has this game, if J.K. Dobbins has 91 rushing yards for twenty with 21 carries every game, can Ohio State make the playoff? Well, if he did it every game, the, the 91 on 21 looks different against Michigan State than it does, or Penn State, than it does against Florida Atlantic. My thing is, if you take what he did last week, 91 on 21, and apply it to one of those other games, it ain't 91 on 21. It's something less than that. I'd, I, I, one of the reasons I picked this team to go 10-2 and two is probably because I'm not a believer in him yet as that kind of elite back. He will need to make things happen on his own from time to time. He's not going to always be able to rely on what is right now a very young offensive line. That even if it's getting better, they're... They're not the Red Sea's not going to part for him as much. He's going to have to break those on his own. He's got a quarterback who's still learning the the the, the, the run pass option stuff, the read option stuff. That he's going to have to um, make something out of nothing from time to time. I mean, some of this is on his shoulders. It, it takes a whole team, a whole offense, to have a good rushing attack. But I think he needs to step up his end of that. I think the combination of how he's talked all off season and how literally since the day one of spring camp. Ryan Day has literally said, we need him, we need him, we need him. He has to step up. He's going to be our main back. We need him to do X, Y, and Z, especially as Justin Fields is learning. There's no way this team is a playoff team without him because if he does that against Nebraska and Justin Fields is still not there yet and still not getting it, they're definitely going to lose that game because where are they going to lean at? I think that's I think that's a good analysis. I, 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 they need him. It's just a matter of like, you guys are right. What should we most be most concerned with about moving forward? Oh, here's the thing. This is how much I like J.K. Dobbins. J.K. Dobbins wore bright and colorful uh, Nike shoes to check-in day, and it started a conversation, and I went out and bought the same shoes that J.K. Dobbins has. Now, the problem is that J.K. Dobbins has multiple pairs of different shoes, so he and I have not worn the same shoes on the same day, but when we do... He's going to burn them. We're going to be shoe buddies. Are those called Air McDonald's? So what are these called, Stephen? They're Nike 
elements. Nike Air elements. Okay. And like, there's actually a pretty. I mean, these are cool too, Doug. I'll just give you that little point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think they're cool, right? I mean, they're nice shoes. Yeah. But like, the dope things about there's like pairs of these shoes that are like see through. So if you wear dope socks with them, I got really dope. Nike socks with a little swoosh on the top of the sock. Is that dope? These aren't them because I wore them with jeans, so I didn't worry about my socks. SMH. I only yeah. own Nike socks, unless they're like the socks that you so you that don't show. Because here's the thing, so right? I so that take me through this. So your socks right now above your sneaker, yeah, is like a is like up to mid uh, shin, right? Yeah. I'm constantly worried about how high my sock can be with my sneaker because uh-huh. usually I wear like the super low cut, but yeah. then these. Shoes are a little bit higher. And they chafe into your back. I got a blister. I went for a walk with my dog and I got a blister and I bled on my shoe the first night I had them. But I'm worried about too much sticking out. How much, Nathan's rubbing his temples, how much sock can stick out of a 46 year old sneaker (laughs) and still have me be cool? I think the sock length I have right now is fine for the shoes you have on. That'll work. I think, like, I mean, if you had on, like, the the LeBron's you wear a lot. Yeah. Um, the socks you usually wear with those are fine because they're like a low they're top. Low. Yeah, they're low top okay. sneakers. But like with a yeah, with a suit that's like a mid top or a high top, the socks. Don't if I ever see you with socks that come up to your knees, I may never. That's speak what to I. You again. I mean, that's what I wore when I was nine. That's what I. That's what people did back then. Yeah, so, I may never speak to you again if I ever see you with tube socks. All right, so J.K. Dobbins, um, I would look forward to being your shoe buddy. Yeah. Um, so much for our ten thousand subscribers. Yeah. On the podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> Here's the thing, and I've, I've, I'm getting a little worried about this. It has always been a delicate balance on Buckeye Talk between football and nonsense. And honestly, Nathan, you will not believe this. We are much heavier on football yeah. lately than we used to be. Oh, you're welcome. We did a whole podcast about robots one time because I interviewed a professor about robots. We used to just dive in on fast food constantly. And there's, there are people who like the food, and there are people who like the football and turn off the food and the robot talk and the shoe buddy talk. But there are so many podcasts out there now. Like Chris Spielman has a podcast now with Bruce Hooley, and, yeah. and it's great. If you're just looking for football knowledge and it's me versus Chris Spielman, we're dead. We are dead in the water. We need to have like – Nonsense that is inspired by football. Like that yes. whole conversation was inspired by football. Because we were talking about J.K. Dobbins and how you guys have, are shoe buddies. But I feel like if we're just going to be talking about how, like, is the filet of fish better than, I guess, the Big Mac? Right. It has like, to come yeah. out naturally. Yeah. But I feel like we must continue to allow the nonsense to flow in this ever more crowded Ohio State podcast universe. Because. If we don't have a little bit of nonsense, brother, we got nothing. And Chris Spielman ain't talking about bloody blisters. No. no. Not at all. Chris, you know who Chris Spielman has as a shoe buddy? No one. Because Chris Spielman just like wears bricks on his feet because he's like the toughest person in America. I can't compete with that. Nike, get in conversation with me. I feel like I just gave you a lot of free press. Yeah. yeah. Get an ad, Nike. Yeah. Hold our <laughs> breath on that one. Um <laughs> We talked about this in the video. We'll talk about it here. If J.K. doesn't resume his freshman year form, how many games will it take before people start calling on Teague? I think Teague should start getting every third or fourth series at this point uh, if J.K. isn't producing like he did as a freshman. So, again, we talked about this in the video, but we have different audiences. So what did you guys say in terms of how Teague maybe could work in? Yeah, I think it's I mean, it's a matter of who's producing. Um, uh, as, as I believe Clint Eastwood once said, 
in the film Unforgiven. Deserving got nothing to do with it. You were it's the nothing, movie references, it's man. Nothing, it's nothing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You've at least heard of Unforgiven, right? Yeah, I've like, no, like heard of all these Have movies. You? It's just amazing. I was man. pretty sure you maybe hadn't heard of The Money Pit. Oh, no, no. That's, I think, the one I have it. But, like, you're um, on fire, man. But, but it's it's not it's nothing should be just uh, granted to someone. I mean, if 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 and especially T, I thought T ran pretty well. Um, the other, I thought McCall ran pretty well. Um, at least certainly no worse than what um, than what Dobbins is doing. So if those guys are producing, they absolutely should get carries. I think I think we need to like relax a little bit with like the Teague thing. He was great on Saturday. But this is the guy who's also been hurt all offseason. So and like, Ryan Day brought that up Yeah, a lot like today. his reps weren't there. So really, he was getting the type of reps he maybe would have gotten in practice, but he just wasn't available and, in practice, and he made the most of those reps. Yes, he did. But, like, let's relax here. J.K. Dobbins has been there and getting those reps. Marcus Crowley got some reps. He got some carries on Saturday as well. Demario McCall, he missed a lot of the spring because he was injured. And I, from the way they're going to use him, they're going to use him in passing situations, and he's going to be their main returner guy. T could probably get in maybe every okay fine if he gets in every fourth or fifth series maybe that does happen to get J.K. Dobbins a breather but this is a guy who missed a lot of football because he was injured so let's relax on you know one game in the last eight months where he could actually fully get a lot of reps and just like let's see what he does going forward let's see what J.K. does going forward let's see what T can do going forward in practice. We're going to try to keep it under two hours, I think, midweek now, because we're doing the, the post-game pod, which is going to be like 45 minutes to an hour. And then we'll try, I think, maybe to shoot around 145 for the Wednesday one. So we've got about 20 minutes left. I want to make sure we get to this one from Eric Simmons, who says, Hi, Doug, long-time listener, first-time texter. Awesome. I think many impressed were impressed with the DB play and how Jeffrey Okuda flew all over the field. However, should there be some concern that there were no interceptions or defensive Turnovers. There was an interception. I think he's talking oh, about. Proctor, yeah, right. but he's, I think he's, they're, they're, he's referring to like the first first. Yeah, yeah. When the, when the game was in the balance. Yeah. Any? Would you do? You, would you wanted some a couple more big plays maybe from the secondary? Yeah, and I think I said that after the game. I think in a video that never actually aired. We were asking, the vanishing like, video. Yeah. <laughs> so like, this I, was my topic of we had like what were your concerns coming out of this game? And I said I think one of you is going to find that video on your phone in December. We're just going to put it up. <laughs> I said I thought I thought I, I I expected maybe a little bit more disruption, but also this was I thought a pretty boring Florida Atlantic offense for the most part. And like you said, they're throwing to a lot of tight ends, not taking shots downfield. Um, you know, they did sack them four times. Um, and I think it's again the more pressure they start getting to these quarterbacks. And again, that'll come when they get their actual starting defensive line back intact, potentially. The more pressure you're putting on those teams, uh, the more it, it's kind of a domino effect. That's going to lead to potentially more interceptions. I didn't really, I will say this, I didn't look at that game and think, it's not like they were dropping what should have been interceptions. Sometimes if the ball's not there, you can't intercept it. I think, I may be wrong about this, because I, I wasn't over it very long, but Co-defensive coordinator Jeff Halfley at one point, did he not say that he kept his like starters in a little bit yeah. longer to get them some action? I was there the whole time with uh, Halfley and, and wrote and he, about that. He okay. did say that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Right. I think he so I think he kinda was like like upset that like there were no real defensive turnovers. That's because like they weren't testing them. And he's he's not wrong. They weren't testing him, so the opportunities weren't there. Like Proctor made a great play on a ball to go get an interception. It's not like it was schemed up, and you know, poor Atlanta's quarterback just made a bad throw, and we just ended up with the Ohio State just ended up with the ball. No, he made a play to go get that ball in a way that we've already talked about. Jordan Fuller didn't have a chance to go make a 
go and make a play on the ball. The entire starting DBs didn't have a chance to really go make a play on the ball the way that Proctor did in that game. I, 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 I'm going to throw this caveat out there because I always do. I cannot remember what I say and what I write and who I say stuff to. So I don't think I talked about this after the game, but I might have. I definitely texted it to people over the weekend. This is a different thing, though. So this, the one, I thought Okuda was great. He broke on a ball on on one play where it was like one of the few times they threw to receiver. He broke on it and broke it up. He had a tremendous open field tackle where he's just like, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna tackle. There's been a big thing with the Browns and Greedy Williams. He doesn't tackle like Jeffrey Okuda will tackle. The way they're going to play, and I know they talked about it a lot, and, and a lot of times it's – you guys should know. Sometimes it's – we're off kilter with you sometimes because we are not listening to the TV broadcast the way you guys – you're absorbing what you see and what you hear at the exact same time. Yeah. So Gus Johnson and Joel Klatt, and Joel Klatt, who I've discussed in this podcast before. That's amazing. Just a tremendously handsome man. Uh, uh, and I'm very excited. Okay. Never mind. I'm not a take. I had lunch with Joel Klatt. I had some tremendous gnocchi with Joel Klatt. You haven't heard this story yet. He's just, he's just my guy. I'm not his guy, but I'm doing this thing where I get. To, I'm going to the fake the mock playoff committee in the middle of this season, and I was very excited to find out that Joel Klatt will also be there. So I just imagine that when I come back, our friendship, currently non-existent, will be even stronger, at least in my mind. If Ohio I, State makes it into the Big Ten ter- championship game, he's going to make you go to this restaurant and try these gnocchis. Oh, it's so good. I love gnocchis. Oh, it's, it's oh, great. Like, like a gnocchi like, bolognese. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a potato ball of pasta. Oh, it's amazing, yeah. Oh, it, and it's in Indianapolis. There's one. Yeah. Have you eaten at the Marriott? There's a, a Italian restaurant in the Marriott near the RCA Dome. No. Well, now you That's will where if they get there. Oh, I hope they get I don't, there. I don't now I'm rooting for that. Ohio State. Go Bucks. Um. So... They were talking during the broadcast a lot about this zone defense. And I know they brought Urban Meyer in even to talk about the zone. Because on the quick tape I watched, I just caught part of what Urban said. But he was saying, like, we never played that zone or whatever. But what they're doing a lot, and you can see it in the first couple snaps. So they're playing this this single high safety. And so they're having the cover sort of – the corners are up on the receivers. They can, like, sort of go back and forth between, like, a cover one and a cover three from play to play. And I think what I texted to the people is – that's where some of the disguise of this defense is going to come in. I think the first two snaps of the game, they played cover one, which is a single high safety with the corners in man, locked up in press man. You're playing press man with with a one safety behind you to help out. What they did most of the rest of the game is have those corners drop back. And so the corners are playing zone with the safety help in the middle of the field, and the corners are responsible for sort of their side of the field playing zone on those receivers. And what they're doing is giving up those underneath throws. And so, like, for instance, when Okuda made that great break on the ball, he's back. He's not playing press man. He's back in a zone and then breaking on the ball when he sees the ball coming. That was the defense that they played in 2013, and it drove Urban Meyer crazy because in 2013, they just gave up repeatedly. They would drop back, and I think they were playing maybe cover two back then, but they would drop back, and they repeatedly that year on third and seven would give up a nine-yard pass without even challenging the guy, Mm. and it was just ridiculous. So I like the look, right? I like this zone look, and again, Urban then after 2013 brought in Chris Ash. They played press man all the time. I think usually with two safeties behind him, sometimes one, but it was like, we're going to be up on you. We have the corners who can do it, but we're going to be up on you, and we are not going to give up that stuff those easy throws anymore. We're not giving up a nine-yard throw on third and seven. I'll be curious to see when they have a better offense that can test them better 
and they face they're going to throw to receivers more how they handle that but i think they're going to have the ability to say okay snap to snap because they would come up those corners if you watch the replay they'd come up and press man show that to the quarterback and then right before the snap they back off and then play zone sometimes they can come up and come up and, play, and look show press man and stay press man sometimes they'll show cover three back off the receiver and then at the snap come up and play press man i think they'll show cover three play cover one they'll show cover one play cover three they'll mix that up it's all with a single high safety behind them i think they're going to have some ability to disguise in that but we're not going to really find out until they're tested however i thought okuda looked like a top 15 pick he's long he's physical he's up on you when he's in coverage i think okuda potentially I think of the first round corners that I've seen here, and I just, Denzel Ward is one of the nicest guys, one of the nicest families I've ever talked to. I'm still working on a huge story on him that's going to come out this week unless, I mean, it's got to come out this week. I've had it in the can for a month and a half. He's just a little bit smaller. Roby was great. Gary and Conley was great. Eli Apple was really good. I thought the best corner that I've seen here in my time here is Marshawn Lattimore. The one year of Marshawn Lattimore, that guy is ridiculously fast but is really physical, has a big body, and you could not get breathing room against that guy. And I think Okuda at his best is that. I think he has a big body. I think he has great cover instincts. I think he has great speed, and he looks like he wants to be physical. So if this question from Eric Simmons is, are you worried about interceptions and and a lack of interceptions, that kind of thing, it's just they weren't tested. I'm very curious for them to be tested. I think Personnel-wise, I believe a lot in Okuda, and I think there's reason to believe in Arnett and Fuller. I'm curious about it scheme-wise, but I think they're going to be able to do some things to cover tight when they need to. Not just a, If they're getting killed on those seven-yard throws in third and five, then they'll stop that, and they'll say, well, now we're going to play press man. But I think otherwise they're going to say, well, we're not going to let you beat us over the top. We're not going to get defensive pass interferences down the field because we're going to back off a little bit. They're going to vary that coverage. And I think I think it should work for them, but I just don't think we got a good read on it because they threw the tight ends the whole game. Yeah, and a week where this could really open up would potentially be not so much this Saturday, but I think the next Saturday at Bloomington with a guy uh, in uh, Penix for IU that threw the ball a whole lot in the first game, but it's still relatively inexperienced. Um, team like that that maybe Ohio State can go after force them into some of those decisions. I think that's a, I think that's a very good point. Five one three one is the Buckeye Talk get together um, right now. Yeah, you yeah. guys come on over. I, I would like to have one, especially <clears throat> especially to help you guys get to know Nathan. I, I, we did a we did a show last year, a live mm-hmm. Buckeye Talk right. at a, a sports bar. Um, so I don't know if we'll do that, but maybe before a game we can plan. Uh, Maybe like before Miami of Ohio or something like the Friday night. We'll figure it out. If you guys are interested, we'll figure it out. We'll make it open uh, to tech subscribers first. It's going to be a lock-in. We're going to, like like the old uh, you know, church youth group lock-in, we're going to just lock people in the bowels of Ohio Stadium overnight with just the three of us. And again, I think it's possible that they just locked the doors of this building and we'll be sleeping here. Uh, and is there any coach that wants anyone as much as Fickle wants to win this game Saturday? So let me do a small Luke Fickle tangent very quickly just because I feel like I have a, a – a unique view uh, on Luke Fickle to some extent. So Luke Fickle, and this this is why I asked, I thought I was going to talk to Luke Fickle, and I've been talking to Cincinnati. I'm a little frustrated that I haven't gotten to talk to him because I will tell you this. Um, in Luke Fickle's last year here at Ohio State, he was sort of interested in a story that made clear that he was ready to be a head coach again. And uh, I had covered Luke for a long time. Um, Luke is... 
12 days older than me. Um, that doesn't really mean anything, but I, I just I just had covered him for a really long, a really long time. And so in uh, 2016, I went to Luke Fickle's house um, and I sat down with Luke and his wife, Amy. I just had a really long conversation sort of about life, about the decisions you make as a family when jobs come up. And I think this is one of the most interesting quotes that I've gotten in my 15 years doing this. Uh, Luke Fickle said this about being at Ohio State, his alma mater and the place where he had to that point basically coached his whole life. Being here is a blessing and a curse. It's the greatest thing that has happened to my family. It's been stable and you made great memories. The curse is it hasn't pushed you to go do some of these other things. If you're at a place that is not this tradition rich, where you don't have these roots, maybe it's different, but I'm in an incredible place, so you think we don't have to go. So basically, he had it so good, he never had taken a risk in his career. He had been offered Mac jobs and turned them down, but we also have reached the point where Big Ten assistants no longer take Mac jobs because you're taking a pay cut. And if you go there and you lose, you're done, and it's not worth the risk. So it was reasonable for Luke to wait for more of a, of a mid-tier job. Chris asked to Rutgers is that kind of job. I knew Luke. I know Luke was very interested in Pitt at different times. He always wanted to go to a Midwest place. I don't think Luke wanted to go to Fresno State. You know, I mean, people talk culture fit a lot. Luke knew what his culture fit was. It was it was to take, go somewhere where you could do an Ohio State kind of thing. And Cincinnati was that perfect spot. He had been interested in Cincinnati previously um, when they hired Tommy Tuberville, and just didn't really get a look back then, I think, and was frustrated that he, is it Tuberville? Was frustrated. He's running for Senate now, I think. Go for that guy. That guy I like, was like mediocre. I have a mediocre Cincinnati coach. Make me a senator. Um, I think he was frustrated he hadn't gotten a sniff earlier. And so it's like, coincidentally, I, I talked to Luke earlier and then I sort of held the story and the season got busy and like he got hired at Cincinnati like five days after this story ran. It didn't get him the job or anything, but it just was an honest expression of like, I'm ready for this. So I think, I mean, Luke, Luke, the opportunity to just graduate to the Ohio State job from an assistant, he would have loved. But I think he always knew that was never going to happen. He knew he had to leave at some point. And it was just weird that he got a chance here for the one year and he never got to be himself. And this is what I think I want to write about Luke and Ryan Day. I think Ryan Day and his three games taken over for Urban, even though he was in the structure of Urban's structure, I think he sort of got to be himself. He got to be himself, but also he had everything around him to help him win. Luke initially thought he was inheriting a Jim Trestle who was going to be suspended for six games. And then it turned out Trestle was gone. And he was no longer an interim coach for half a season. He was the coach for a whole season. But he had to do it with Jim Trestle's staff. And he didn't have a structure in place. Jim Trestle was an offensive guy. And they had just lost Daryl Hazel to Kent State. And on that offensive coaching staff, I think Trestle and Hazel were the two most important guys. And they were both gone. And Luke had to turn over his offense to Jim Bowman, who, who was not equipped be, to be the primary play caller for a Big Ten offense at that point. And he brought in his friend Mike Vrabel to help him with the defense, but it, he just never got to put his best foot forward. So I think Luke Fickle looks at Ryan Day, and like Ryan Day got all this credit last year for what he did for three games. But Ryan Day was set up to succeed in a difficult situation. Luke Fickle was set up to fail in a difficult situation. And also... And I'll write this. If you would have taken Dwayne Haskins, Thayer Munford, and J.K. Dobbins off of that team that Luke that Ryan Day was coaching last year, it would have been very different. And uh, and Paris Campbell. Because that's what Luke Fickle lost. He lost his quarterback and Terrell Pryor, who left. He lost Mike 
Adams, the left tackle, Devere Posey, the best receiver, and Dan Heron, the best running back, to suspension for six games. So Ryan Day was in a tough spot, but he had everything. Luke Fickle was in a tough spot, and he had nothing. And the result was that Luke did the best he could, but never got to be himself. And then they said, yeah, we're hiring Urban now. Do you want to stay? Ryan got to show what he could be. And then when they were done, they were like, yeah, by the way, Urban's done. Do you want it? So I think Luke is not angry, and it worked out great for him. But I think Luke would look at this situation and say, man, if I had been, give me the Ryan Day interim. Give me three games in a structure to be myself, show that I can do it, and then the guy leaves? And they say, do you want it? As opposed to, you give me a whole year, but it's chaos. And then when I'm done, they say, oh yeah, by the way, this two-time national champion who walks around with a Buckeye nut in his pocket, he wants it. And you're like, and I said, Luke Fickle could have gone 12-0 and that that year, and they still would have hired Urban Meyer. So like, does Luke want this? I think he does. I don't think he wants it from a vengeful standpoint. I don't think he wants it from a like, I got screwed standpoint, because I don't think he thinks that, because he loves Ohio State. What I think Luke Fickle would love to do is come into this stadium and show Ohio State and Ohio State fans the real Luke Fickle as a head coach. Because, and I'm sure if I got to talk to him this week, maybe he'd tell me this. Maybe he doesn't need to talk to me because I already know it. I think this is all right. I get in their head sometimes. I think I think he would nod his head along to this podcast. Someone send it to Luke and tell him to listen. And if he disagrees, he can call me. I think he wants to come to Ohio Stadium and show I'm a good head coach. Because I think he would say, I was Ohio State's head coach for 13 games, but I never got to show you what I can really do. So does he want to come beat Ohio State? Absolutely. And he said that. It's like your, your brother. You know, you want to beat your brother more than you want to beat anybody. But it's not from anger. But I, I don't even know that it's winning. I just want him. I think he wants to come in and be proud of his team and proud of his program because I think he wants Ohio State fans to be proud of him. And so I think there's a lot of ways that all can happen and work out for everybody. And it doesn't have to be Cincinnati winning. But I think it's Luke showing I can actually do this and I and you didn't see the real me the first time around. So if I just had said earlier, I think I could see Ohio State winning 55 to 10, that wouldn't be it. Maybe that won't happen because I think maybe Luke just like, you're not scoring 55 on me no matter what. You know what I mean? I don't know. Anyway, that's my big long speech I wanted to give about Luke Fickle because I used to follow Luke out. That year in 2000, he just made he made some mistakes. I remember the game at Miami, he just like completely botched the timeouts at one point. And and I, the week I very I said I remember saying to him, I don't want to belabor the point about the timeouts, like the Tuesday after the game. And then, but I said basically, but, and I don't remember what I said, but it was basically like, but what you did didn't make any sense. And like he was like, well, you know, it was what I did. Like he didn't have an answer for it. And it was clear like he just was sort of overwhelmed in the moment in week three. And I would follow Luke outside a lot of weeks and say, are we being fair to you? Is there anything we don't know? You're getting a lot of this heat. Tell me something so that I understand, well, actually, this is the deal. And he never made an excuse. Out, outside. He, off the record. Outside one on Yeah, for people who just don't me. understand. It's just, yeah, it's one-on-one. It's, and, and it's more informal. It's real deal time. Right. And he never took it. I was giving him the opportunity to blame somebody else or come up with an excuse that I could have worked into a story. And he never took it. And he said, no, I appreciate it, but it's good. I'll take it. 
and he never shied from that. So, so I hope, and I know they will, and I know they will. He won a national championship here. Like, I, it, it, he won two. Um, it's all good. Did he win two? Maybe he came the year out. He didn't win in 2002. I think he came right after that. So he won one. Anyway, I think Ohio State fans criticized Luke Fickle to some degree when he was here because you criticize assistant coaches. Uh, I think he that was unfair sometimes, but I think they will welcome him back, and I, I think he wants to show um, what kind of coach he is, and I think he's, he's done that at Cincinnati. So anyway, I had a long speech on that, but I just think I have a view on that that not a lot of people have, which is why I would love to talk to him. You and others said all offseason that Ryan Day has been in several ways more ruthless than Urban, and that was a good thing. I agree. What would it take for Ryan Day to be so ruthless that Master Teague starts to split carries with Dobbins? So, again, this is a thing that's popped up, the ruthlessness factor, that, again, like Justin Fields is ruthless. That's like, hey, Tate Martell's been here waiting his turn. Oh, by the way, here comes the number two recruit in the country. I just dropped him on your head. You're probably going to have to leave. Ruthless, not like you earned your spot. How, how like... Urban Meyer never would have turned away from, from JT, right? Never did. Never thought about it. How ruthless. Again, we've already answered this, but like, let's talk about not the, not the uh, on the field who earns the carries thing, but the general idea of a guy who has played as much as JK and has been as important to this offense as JK, even fathoming the idea of like you're not the number one back anymore. I think if it looks ugly this week, it becomes a conversation between Dan and Tony Alford and that Miami Ohio game. They might try start testing some things out just because they're going to win that game just simply sheer off talent. So if it looks ugly this week, yeah, I think they start testing it out. Well, you got to go to IU before you play Miami of Ohio too. And I think that's what, what gets interesting. I mean, I, I don't consider it like um, ruthlessness to – point out that a guy isn't really producing that much. Again, one game in, small sample size, other factors involved, etc. But uh, he, there was nothing that happened in that first week that makes you think that J.K. Dobbins is like insurmountable as the the lead running back. Or that at least more of his carries can go to other people in certain situations. Do you Did you believe Ruckert was going to be as involved in the passing game as he was last Saturday? This is from our guy, Drizzy Get Busy. To me, that was one of the bright spots of the day. I know both his TDs were wide-open throws, but I was worried Ryan Day was not going to use Ruckert as much as he should. I was relieving to see that the first play of the season was a throw to him. I was not surprised because I was anticipating Ryan Day using the slot guy or an offset guy, um, not just having it be a fast guy, but having it be the tight end sometimes. Nathan, you broke it down, this tight end stuff. Was there anything surprising in there when you looked at and really examined the Ruckert usage, or, or when you examined it, what did you think about how it might fit in future games? Well, yeah, when you go back and look at it, there were a lot of, um, even the single tight end sets where they're splitting a guy out, either somewhat or somewhat or fairly extremely, but they weren't targeting tight ends that much in those situations. Most of the tight end receiving production came in the double tight situations. And on in the example of, of both of those Rucker touchdowns, they came playing off of something that Luke Farrell did. Either they're running that route in combination and, and Rucker cuts it inside. And I guess it was a line. I can't remember if it was a linebacker safety, but they go with Farrell and there's nobody there to cover Rucker and it's just wide open. He can walk it in. And, and the same thing on the goal line where they were running the three tights and, um, you know, Farrell was running kind of a drag out along the parallel of the goal line, but he got taken out pretty quickly. But again, that just left no one standing in the vicinity of Ruckert. So, 
you know, kudos to, to Ruckert for doing what he needed to do on those plays and, and for and Fields capitalizing on it. But I, I think it's interesting that I, I want to s- I'm I'm eager to see what they do with the tight end going forward if more of these single tight end sets where they've got a guy, especially when you've got a guy in the slot, in the route tree or whatever, in the, in the progressions, do those guys become targeted more against other teams? I mean, it, may, it may be game plan defend, dependent too. What I, the most important thing I thought you saw was just how much they were going to use the double tight. I mean, that was it was a really significant part of the game. And, and now, and I guess, I assume if, if Rashad Berry gets mixed back into this, then that's a whole other body that you get to include and, and adds a, a, a different wrinkle. Because now you can put with him and Farrell and Ruckert all on the field at the same time, potentially, in some of those interesting formations. I mean, now you, I don't know, that could be really interesting. I felt like they got fields going early with short passes, but went away from that. I think they start off against Cincinnati with more short passes to let the guys create in space to help Fields find a rhythm. That's from our guy, Nicky Ender. Steven, what's the game plan you you would use to try to get Justin Fields off to a good start on Saturday? I kind of agree with that, but it's also just kind of encouraged him to throw the ball a little bit. Like, those intermediate passes, he's got to feel the confidence to be able to do that. So, like, I think that's something that they're going to work on this week is, like, throwing those intermediate passes and those crossing routes and just getting him comfortable throwing them in, in practice where – you know, it seems like a lot of times Ryan Day would come in a press conference saying he wasn't happy with the amount of turnovers. And you know, Doug, you said this one day: when you see a pass get intercepted and you don't see who threw it, you probably it's probably Fields. With everybody else, you usually see who threw the ball. So I think this week he's got to be willing to throw those passes and not just look at him, look at him, look at him, and go, "Now nah, I'm just going to take off with my feet." This is the week where you know you kind of put an emphasis on, "Hey, like they're there, they're going to be there, and you got to be willing to throw them." The defense looked dominant, and they were without arguably their second, third, and fourth best defensive ends. That's Cooper, uh, Tyreek Smith, and Tyler Friday. This team reminds me of the 2016 team with a higher ceiling on offense. Which past Ohio State team would you compare both sides of the ball to even after just one game? I mean, I think 16 is a reasonable comparison, except that, I mean, that secondary had four first-rounders in it. So, like, I don't think the upside is that high. I think, like, there's definite definite upside with, with uh, Okuda, um, but, but not with the other guys to the extent that you had with Hooker, Ward, Conley, and Lattimore. The problem with that team was that they were a little limited throwing the ball down the field. So I think it's possible the 2016 team is a decent comparison on both sides. I'm curious to see how they progress in the passing game because that was the first year of them trying to really throw the ball down the field. But I will say Ryan Day is a better play caller than they had in 2016. So um, I think it's hard. I think Justin Fields in this offense, there's sort of a mismatch of a bunch of other stuff. I was going to say maybe some 2013 stuff with what Fields and, and Dobbins could do compared to what Hyde and Miller did. But Fields is so different than Braxton. Um, it, that's probably not a good comparison. I think 2016 is a decent comparison. And the thing about 2016, and I will get to a 9-3 and three question, the 2016 team I've always said was a 9-3 and three team that went 11-1. and one. And They made the playoff when they probably shouldn't have because they pulled out some really tough, tight games. And the result was they overachieved and got to the playoff and got their butt kicked. So... If that was a nine and three team that won eleven and one, and I think this is a nine and three team, I think that's a decent comparison. And that's the thing too. Maybe this team's gonna be a nine and three team that goes eleven and one. Maybe they were never a nine and three team to begin with, other than in my head. So I think twenty sixteen is not a bad place to be, but add a better play caller in Ryan Day to all of that. Um, um no one believes you, Doug, not even your mom. Nine and three is not happening. Not. I will say not even your mom. My mom definitely believes me. Because my mom uh believes me about everything. The sentiment from the game Saturday seems more negative than positive. I can be as harsh a critic as anyone, but strangely, I feel pretty calm about what happened, especially defensively. 
Um, does that seem like a reasonable position? I feel much better going into week two this year than I did after Oregon State last year. That's from Ricky from Richie Kybers in the three one four. I think that is a reasonable position based on what I said before of like you just saw some defensive things in the opener last year that just could have like were cracks that they never could fill. Um, offensive line from the five six one. Why did it look so dominating for eleven minutes and so underwhelming the rest of the game? Um, I don't know. In the end, is our official position up the bit that we agree? What is our official position on the offensive line? In conclusion, the offensive line in week one was blank. It was good. Okay. Uh, I thought it was a good foundation with for we're, we're, we're room to grow. Um, but every team should say that after week one, to some extent. Um, they got through it healthy. They're, they're building some depth there. You're going to need eight guys, realistically, to have... To, to get through a season, probably. Um, they, they, I think it'd be interesting to see. I know you were talking today with um, with the coach about um, Petit Frere and how that that battle with, with, with um, Bowen and how that plays out even going forward, potentially. Um, so I, I think it's, again, it's, just, it's kind of part of the learning process. But you've got so many guys there doing it for the first time or doing it at Ohio State for the first time that it, it's just a – it's – a potential solid first step into something better. I'm going to say they were okay. And I think the fact that you're like stuck on this Nick Petit Fair, Brandon Bowen thing, I'm kind of like slowly making my way over to your boat. I don't know if that's like completely 100% Bowen's job. And I think as things go forward, that might change just because, you know, why did he beat out Nick Petit 12? Well, maturity. All right. Well, there's more than just maturity to being a good offensive lineman. They had their moments where they were really, really good, and they led to a 51-yard touchdown pass. But they had some moments that were really, really bad. And as you point out, too, Dobbins was trying to dance before he even got a chance to get through a hole. So just okay. From the 817, there were some clear adjustments FAU made after the first quarter. What? What were the adjustments? Why does no one ever specifically say what adjustments were made? Did the LB, did the linebacker chest up? They went to a bare front? What? What were the magic adjustments they made that stymied us? So, like, coaches aren't going to say because coaches don't want to, like, give away all the game plan stuff in the press conference and like we don't say it sometimes because it's like we haven't watched the game again like we don't know and also like we're not coaches so the thing in the end that Greg Strudrawa talked about on Tuesday was that the defensive line played him straight up at the start and then they started moving around and and they had to tell the offensive line quit being as aggressive wait a little bit because like guys are moving and you're going to be blocking air if you keep going after him that much and again that's and he said, and that's what Cincinnati's going to do. So I think the one thing is, I think Luke understands this. And, th- and we'll end with this. We, we didn't get to everybody. We appreciate everyone's questions. I think we covered a lot of the topics you wanted to talk about. I think Luke understands this because this has happened in Ohio Stadium a lot. You cannot come in and think that like normal is going to work. You have to understand your limitations and realize that Ohio State has more talent than you. And from the get-go, you have to be different. Just like Virginia Tech, again, when they came in with a defensive front in 2014 that Ohio State wasn't expecting, Florida Atlantic like came in and like seem, seemingly like tried to play it straight, and then they were down 28-0, and then they tried something different. I think Luke knows we got to be different from the beginning. All the coaches always say if they're going to show us something that we haven't seen on film all week, I, they might come out and not play. They could play an entire defense that they've never played in the Luke Fickle era. You know, like I, because th- I think that's I think he understands that. It always bothers me, not because I care who wins, but it just bothers me from a standpoint of like you came all the way here, you're getting a million bucks or whatever. Like this is your big shot, 
and what? And you just came out and said like, well, I don't know, maybe we'll just beat them straight up. No, you're not going to beat them that way. You've got to try something. And I think Cincinnati will try. Because Luke, for 15 years as a player and a coach, absorbed the fact of like Ohio State is better than almost everybody who comes in here. So what's your plan to be different? And so I do think where Florida Atlantic maybe wasn't different from the get-go, I think Cincinnati will be different from the get-go. We can't get to any more questions. Anything else we want to add? Do you think they'll come after Justin Fields? Like, wouldn't that be uh, – that's something that I don't know that Florida Atlantic really tried that hard. Um, come after him early and make him make him make the more decisions than he had to make that first week. No, I think they sit back and make him be a thrower. We've all, we all know Justin can run. Like, that's not a secret. For, you don't have to be a head coach – to know that Justin Fields can do things with his legs. I think the fact that, like, there were some throws he just wouldn't make on Saturday shows us he's not ready to make those shows yet, which is why I said that they need to focus on that a little bit this week. I think they sit back and say, hey, Dwayne Haskins could do this, and so we couldn't just let sit back there and let him tear us apart because he would. You haven't shown that you can – if we sit back here, you're going to tear us apart. So prove to us that you can tear us apart and throw some of these routes. I don't know. If you sit back without bringing pressure, aren't you just asking him to run? I mean, that's what I, I've thrown out the idea of sit back, drop eight, rush three, and then um, people have said, well, yeah, aren't you asking him? I mean, if you drop eight in man-to-man and you're chasing receivers down the field and your back is turned and the quarterback can run, if you drop eight in a zone and you're, and you're waiting for him to find soft spots in a zone but your eyes are on the quarterback, then I think you can try to contain the run mm-hmm. game a little bit more. I think it might be one of those things. I think, I think they might like drop eight, drop eight, drop eight, blitz five guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I would just I would think I don't it's not it doesn't have to be relentless, but I just think they they I would wouldn't be surprised if Cincinnati came after him more than when at Florida Atlantic did. Yeah, I mean I think and you saw a couple guys, I mean I, you know, some guys ran free a couple times, especially when they had some of the the backup offensive linemen and then again, backup is one thing, but but Stodrawa said it again on Tuesday. They played Josh Allaby for Thayer Munford in in real action. They want to do that again. They played Petit Frere for Brandon Bowen at right tackle in real action. I'm curious to see how much they do that cuz I think one of the one of the free blitzers one time or was a guy that I'll be missed and like he hadn't been in the game very long. So um, we we try to get as many questions as we can. Text is just going to be the best way to get questions. I always say, well, next week we'll get to the emails and next week we'll get to the tweets or whatever. Like this is just going to be the, they're paying for it. And so we're trying to get you guys to do the texting if you haven't done it. Again, if you get the interaction from people, they seem to like it. Um, and they get first priority, and we just never get to anything anyway. So they get first priority on the questions, and they got first priority and only priority this week. Lots of stories coming. There's a million things going on this week. So we're going to have a bunch of stuff at cleveland.com. Make sure you're checking in every morning. Check back again like at lunch, and then check again at dinner, and then right after, you know, like right before bedtime. That's four times a day to check. Is that so much to ask? Four times a day today? Four times every day, cleveland.com slash OSU. Find our YouTube channel. Cleveland.com slash OSU. Find the banner there that will let you subscribe for three ninety nine a month to Project Text. And uh, Hall of Fame stuff on Friday. They're going to uh, induct A.J. Hawk, uh, Mike Nugent, Thad Mata, Jim Foster. Lots of recognizable names going to the Ohio State Athletic Hall of Fame. He's Nathan Baird. He's Stephen Means. I'm Doug Maurice. And that was Buckeye Talk.